No, I do not mean hypnosis, but what is? Somehow they have some control over our brains. They are hostile, these sensorites, but in the strangest possible way. They won't let us leave this area of space, yet they don't attempt to kill us. What had happened when we found you? Well, the same thing that's happened many times before. The sensorites have put us into a deep sleep that gives the appearance of death. And yet they've never made any actual effort to destroy us. Far from it. We both have very hazy recollections of them returning from time to time to our ship to actually feed us. Doesn't add up at all. Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the seventh Doctor Who serial, The Sensorites. Woo! <laughs> so, Juliet, since the last time we recorded, I dug up and found the information for you to get in contact with Virginia Weatherell, who played Dione in the Daleks. I cannot wait to write her fan mail. <laughs> okay. I was wondering if you had yet. I was wondering if this was like the smallest thing she'd ever done and she's just like barely going to remember it at all. But I'm going to be like, man, you stuck with me. I can't remember another single Fall's name, but I know yours. <laughs> uh, she did actually come in to do a fan-made commentary track for the DVD. Yeah. So she definitely remembers doing it. Oh, it makes me so happy. <laughs> uh, so otherwise, how are you doing? Oh, you know, it, it's been it's been a day. It's been, it's been okay, I guess. Halloween is approaching, even though I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> I put up some decorations and some lights, though, so that was, that was fun. I uh, totally acquired a Plague Doctor mask because that's who I am. I saw that. I'm very pleased with it. Um, so how have you been? Things are pretty much the same over here again, because, like, I mean, I want to say it's because of COVID and not being able to do anything, but who am I kidding? My life is not very interesting, even before COVID. But yeah, just keeping on with the podcasts, getting those going, and watching Deep Space Nine with my daughter, and Ooh. watching Godzilla movies with my wife. <laughs> We're very, very slowly, like over the process of years, going through every Godzilla movie chronologically. So like every month or two, we'll like pop another one in. That is awesome though. Yeah, we just watched one on Saturday, which is why it's fresh in my mind. Okay. Yeah, so of course, subtitled in Japanese, not the dubs. Because I grew up watching the dubs, because TNT or TBS or one of those was always running like Godzilla marathons or whatever. So I saw a bunch of them when I was a kid. But the live act, like, as much as we talked about anime dubs and how we hate them, like, yeah. live action dubs are so much worse. <laughs> it's like the quality is so bad. And when the, like, I don't mind the lips not matching the words as long as it's fairly close in an animated thing, but mm -hmm. man, when it's actual people, it just seems far more jarring. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, so we're getting the accurate versions of Godzilla. Okay. Yeah, no. I mean, yeah, I wish I had more to say, but I don't. That's fine, because we're actually starting a little bit late, so let's jump into the episode. <laughs> Just for a little background on this story, I know I mentioned in the first episode that when the BBC did their audience research report, because they knew they wanted to do science fiction... They basically were told that the best things to realize on a TV budget were either time travel or psychic powers. And so even though they went forward with the idea of time travel with Doctor Who, there was still sort of this idea of, hey, maybe we should do something with psychic powers. And so that's how this episode comes about. Okay. Yeah. So we start off with episode one, which is Strangers in Space. Which just sounds like a cheesy, cheesy movie title. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Looking at it, I can't help but think of Pigs in Space. Yes. <laughs> Strangers in Space. <laughs> that was exactly what I had in my head. <laughs> I grew up watching The Muppet Show. All right. So, yeah, we go back to the whole thing from the Aztecs of the doctor being so confused that the readings say that the TARDIS has stopped, but they also say that it's moving and Barbara has to come in and be like, so maybe we landed inside something. Right. Yeah. And I still have a hard time with that, that as often as this will happen from now on that the doctor, this never happened to the doctor before, but okay. <laughs> I think he just likes to pretend it never happened to him. Yeah. I guess. Well, with this bad office, Ian, I don't know if you noticed, but in these first two episodes especially, he is, like, stuttering over his lines super badly. So it wasn't just me thinking that. I noticed that there were some issues, but I was trying just to let it go. I figured maybe they were running out of money. Yeah, maybe it's because he's so upset about leaving Kamika in the Aztecs that, you know, Aww. he's just, like, <laughs> he's just distracted. But yeah, but I think there's supposed to have been a time jump because Barbara says that she's over what happened in the Aztecs. And I'm like, um, that's pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she still mentions them. I'm like, okay, so we're still stuck on them at the same time. And Ian has started to chill out about this whole time and space traveling thing, which is nice. Yeah, we get a nice little scene where they're talking and they sort of go through like all their adventures up to this point. They try to see what's outside and the scanner's all scrambled and that never pays off. <laughs> like, never in the story does it explain why that happened. They're like, well, maybe there's uh, an unprotected motor or something nearby, as if it's just like a regular TV. Right. <laughs> but, so then they decide, well, we're just going to have to walk outside and see what's going on. And I don't know if it made any kind of impression on you, but at the time, this was a big deal that they were able to walk straight from the set into the spaceship set at the camera following them without having to cut. I hadn't noticed, but that is pretty cool. Yeah, so this was something where the director for this story was like a guy who had been part of like a BBC research department into like effects. And so they comment, like the, the actors like comment about the fact that they didn't really think that he cared about actors much. <laughs> But but yeah, he's an, he's an effects guy, and so that's why they were able to do that. And so at the time, this was like a big deal. But yeah, that's the problem with science fiction stories from the 60s, is it's like uh, so many of them hinge on like, oh, look at this neat thing that we can do that nowadays is like, oh, we can do stuff way more exciting than that. Yeah. But yeah, so they go into the ship, they're on the bridge, and there are two people there, but they're just kind of like slumped over. 
Yeah, so I was getting flashbacks to like Serenity and stuff. I was mm. like, are they already asleep? Are they dead? They look dead. Also, Susan locks the TARDIS with a key that's on a chain around her neck. And now I finally get that because I see that constantly at Doctor Who merch booths and stuff. Mm. There's a TARDIS key on a long chain. And I'm like, that's weird. Doctor never has, has never opened it with a key that I've seen. Now I get it. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, as they notice that they're dead, the music, actually, I was kind of impressed by the music suddenly right there, the scoring in this episode. Mm, yeah. yeah um, this guy uh, also did An Unearthly Child and The Keys of Marinus. Oh, okay. Norman Kay is his name. Yeah, so they, yeah, they, they check them, they feel for a pulse, they can't find one, they think they're dead, and they start speculating on what could have happened. I was like, be careful of biological things. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's not good when you find just a bunch of bodies everywhere. No, but they're very fresh-looking bodies. I mean, they obviously can't have just been laying there dead for long. Right, because they notice that the bodies are still warm. The doctor points out that they had to, like, because the watches they have, like, this again is, uh, because it's the 60s, it's like, oh, this futuristic watch they have that doesn't need to be wound. Self-winding kind, right? Yeah, it's it's self-winding. So he says that it gets its power from the movement of their wrists. So the watches have stopped, which means they haven't moved in 24 hours, but yet their bodies are still warm. And they're like, okay, that's really weird. But since they have no real reason to stay and they still think these people are dead, they're like, yeah, maybe we better leave. Yeah, and I don't blame them for that because I would also be like, no, this is a bad idea. Let's get out of here. Well, yeah, because you got to think about like, you know, space plagues and stuff like that. Like, do, you know, do these people. What, now we want to think about that? The doctor goes around smoking weird plants, <laughs> alien planets. And now we want to worry about what space plagues? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's just because of Ian and Barbara. He doesn't want them to get sick. He's like, hey, I can handle it. Oh, come on. The doctor, w- like, swings in a pendulum between thinking that they're okay and wanting them off the TARDIS now. Yeah. But yeah, as soon as they start going back to the TARDIS, the man... Oh, I, yeah, I said there are two people, but one's a man, one's a woman. And the man just sort of moves. Because he had been slumped backwards on his chair, and then he sort of, like, lurches forward and slumps over his, like, the controls. Yeah, he's definitely not dead. Yeah, and so they run back, and he's telling them, go get something. He's, like, gasping as he says it. He's definitely not well. And they grab the thing he, he tells them to get, and he bring it over, and they put it on his chest, and it revives him. Yeah, and then he says, do this to her. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's a really cool, handy little device. Yeah. So, th- basically, they, they find out who these people are. Their names are... Well, Carol, we get the first name for Carol, but his name is Maitland, which is the last name. He never gives his first name. And they're (laughs) co-astronauts. Oh, my gosh. They had to make sure we we were equal. Right, exactly. We couldn't just say astronauts. (laughs) Well, he says that, yeah, she's his co-astronaut. So, yeah, but but I just found it funny that they're still using words like astronauts, you know, in, (laughs) in the future. But that's fine. But yeah, like I kind of like Carol, but Maitland seems like he's just kind of sleepwalking through the story. <laughs> that, and it made me so suspicious of him, like the entire time. Right. Yeah, it's it's so weird. Like his delivery on everything just seemed really kind of off. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get it. But yeah, they they're they're humans. They found out they're from Earth. They're from the 28th century, and Ian and Barbara find out that London doesn't even exist anymore. 
the whole like southern half of England is just one huge city called Central City. And yeah, so the weird thing though is like Maitland says, we're from the 28th century. What century are you from? As if this is just a common thing to meet people from other times. Maybe it is. I mean, in Star Trek, they now have rules about time travel. So, I mean, it just happens enough that you finally just accept that it's going to just pop up in front of you at some point. Yeah. The novelization, which the writer for that wasn't the writer who wrote the story, because the writer who wrote the story actually died from falling down the stairs like a few years after this. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was a whole thing, actually, because people were looking for him because, you know, they, you know, people have interviewed just about everyone connected with Doctor Who. At, you know, so people were trying to find out, like, what happened to this writer? Like, we have no idea what happened to this guy. And there's actually an extra on the DVD that actually shows them going to, like, the hall of, like, births records and, like, you know, deaths records and everything in, like, these different cities and trying to find out and basically tracing back where this guy, like, they found, like, the sister who's still alive or this guy and they found out what happened is yeah he just fell down the sea he had like after this he never wrote another thing he tried to keep writing but he had really bad writer's block and he got a different job just to pay the bills and stuff but yeah like one day he fell down the stairs and hit his head really bad and he died oh my god <laughs> yeah so yeah, the novelization was written by someone else, but basically in that, he says that the reason they asked that is they think that they are people who were put in suspended animation and you know, because they're so clueless about what Earth is like. And so that's why he asks, what century are you from? Which might be the explanation, you know, I mean, that, that at least makes some sense. Could be, but man, I mean, don't you think you know if you had people from suspend in suspended animation on your ship? Well, no, 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 like their ship came to their, you know, like, like whatever ship. Docked up with it? Yeah, like docked up with it, yeah. I'm not buying it. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, and it's kind of notable that this is the first time they've actually met people from the future before, because every other time we've done, like, a science fiction story, it's been a different planet. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, Maitland, as soon as he's kind of like come to his senses and they've had this little talk, he's like, leave, leave now, just just go. And of course, that just makes the doctor more eager to find out what's going on. Of course. <laughs> Although he says he's learned to never meddle in people's affairs. And Ian just thinks that's the funniest thing that he's ever heard. I did see that. I was like, man, Ian's just cracking up at him now. <laughs> But yeah, as soon as the doctor's finished talking about how there's like no curious bone in his body, he then turns to Maitland and says, so what's going on? <laughs> or something <Right>? like that. <laughs> it's a nice, fun little scene. So yeah, Maitland tells them that they're in orbit around this planet called the Sensphere, and that the Sensorites, even though they're aggressive in that they control their ship and can control their minds, they're just basically holding them there. They're not trying to kill them. And in fact, even when they put them into like the deep sleep that makes it look like they're dead, they'll come and feed them. Yeah, that was kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so they just don't, they're not going to let you leave. They're not going to let you go anywhere, but they're mm. not going to kill you either. So you're just going to sleep all the time, basically. Mm-hmm. And so Maitland's basically saying, you guys need to leave in case they keep you here too. And then we cut to just, like, a close-up of, like, the TARDIS door, and a hand comes with, like, a cutting tool that's, like, that is cutting not a around cutting the t- That is a pastry whisk or something like that. <laughs> I swear it is. It's like a combination pastry whisk and pastry cutter, you know, the thing that has the little blades on the end? It looks yeah. like a set of brass knuckles or something. It's like you stuck those two things together. That's exactly what that looks like. But it's supposed to be a cutting tool. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... Oh my gosh, if you could seriously like just 
stop the TARDIS from being useful just that by doing that. Just we'll just take out that lock. It's cool. Yeah, well, yeah, I have a couple problems with this because first of all, we don't see it in the shot when they're all talking with Maitland and Carol, but the TARDIS is just maybe 15 feet away from them. I it's wonder- not like it's behind a wall or anything. So somehow they don't notice one of the sensorites just creeping on out, then just burning around the lock and then pulling it out. Like this all happens without any of them going like, whoa, look over there. <laughs> I mean, come on, they're like, at one point they're like, don't, do you smell something burning? And they look around as though they can't see the TARDIS through the massive door that they just walked through. Right, because it's not within the frame of the camera. Right, so (laughs) obviously we can't see. Right, yeah, and then of course they only smell the burning after the lock has been removed, not while it's actually, not while it's being cut. And and then apparently it doesn't leave a massive hole that you can just reach your hand into and unlock the TARDIS. It just leaves, now the TARDIS can't open, and I still don't know how that works. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah, there, there's... Conceptually, this is kind of messed up. Yeah, by the end, I have something to... T- I have my theory about this whole arc. And now that I know that the writer died from a fall down the stairs, it had writer's block after writing this, I, I, it's even more apt with the comparison that I came up with. Okay. But yeah, so yeah, the doctor says they can't beat down the doors because then it would disturb the dimensions and somehow would wreck everything. And so they're basically stuck. And of course, this is the MacGuffin. Like all the stories up to this point have had a MacGuffin for why they can't just leave in the TARDIS. And that that's this one is that they can't, literally can't open the doors. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so we jumped a little bit ahead because Maitland and Carol, because like Susan's even saying while they're still thinking that they can leave, Susan's saying, like, hey, why don't you two come with us? And they're saying, well, we got to think about John. And so they don't really say anything about John, but you get you realize there's another person. Oh, yeah, and then, then, then that's when they discovered the lock has been removed. Okay. And then Carol and Maitland just stopped moving. Yeah, that was weird again. Yes. And the ship starts moving. And so the Doctor and Ian have to jump in and start working the controls. And they're able to get Carol and Maitland to partially respond and and get them doing stuff. But they're basically trying to keep the ship from crack. Because, like, the ship's now curdling towards the sense sphere. And so they have to get it to go away and so they can go back into orbit. And you get the impression later, the doctor says that the sensorites weren't trying to kill them. They were just trying to get them to like do like a near miss to get them scared. Because mm-hmm. when the humans are scared, they're easier to control. Yeah. So then, the, yeah, the doctor wants to know if any of them have actually met any of the sensorites. And they say that John has. And they tell him, you can't meet with John, though, but they won't tell him why. And at the same time, though, Barbara and Susan are looking to make a meal. And so they ask where the water is. And Carol just sort of points and says, like, it's down there. And so we we show, like, the camera shows along the floor, there's a thing uh, on the wall that says water. Yeah. It's so not obvious. I would have missed it, too. And I can't blame the girls for making a very dramatic wave at the sensor that now opens this cool door. Yeah, the doors look just like the doors from Scarrow. In the Daleks. Okay, so again, that wasn't just my imagination. No, no, no. Like, not only are the doors, like, that sort of rounded shape like them, the sensor thing is the exact same thing, and it's the same sound effect. Okay, so I wasn't going crazy. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's like, man, that's, so, like, even when I was a kid watching these, I was like, that's that's the same thing. Like, it even sounds the same. So, yeah, I mean, they, they were being cheap. <laughs> So yeah, so they go into this hallway, basically, off the bridge, 
the door opens into. And when they walk past, this guy sort of steps out from the shadows and starts following behind them. He's got a very Night of the Living Dead shamble going on. Yeah. And his hair is like really wild and, and kind of spiky. You know, he does not. And he kind of stares in a weird way. He, he does not seem to be okay at all. Yeah. Doesn't he lock the door by waving at the sensor as well? Yeah. Like they don't explain how like waving at it, like, you know, in one way, like makes it close or open, but waving at another way apparently locks it. It looks like the exact same wave to me, but I'm guessing maybe if you do something different with your hand, that's how it's (laughs) supposed to work. I don't know. But, yeah. Oh, oh, one thing I didn't say. I don't know if this episode seemed like it was bigger as far as, like, the sets and everything, but they were actually got into one of the larger studios for this one. That's why the spaceship seems so well-developed. There's lots of rooms and different spaces and things that they go into. And they're able to position the TARDIS set in such a way that they can walk straight from it into the spaceship and everything. They got to be in one of the bigger studios. Well, that's cool. Yeah. But yeah, like, suddenly Carol realizes that Barbara and Susan are gone. And... Or maybe Ian does. But then either way, Carol and Maitland start panicking because they realize that they must have gone back there. They run over to the door that they used, and it's locked. And they're like, oh my god, John's in there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you couldn't have warned us all ahead of time. Right. That that you trapped your crazy crewmate in a hallway or a room, and don't go in there. Maybe put a big sign on the door. Yeah, I put a note in, like, Maitland and Carol don't care about mental health at all. No! (laughs) We're just going to leave him alone to his own thoughts. (laughs) Right. But yeah, because I mean, basically, when we actually see what's going on with John, like, he doesn't really seem all that, I mean, he doesn't seem well, but he's not like dangerous or scary or anything. I don't see him with a butcher's knife chasing after people. Right, exactly. Because what happens is we see, like, Barbara and Susan eventually notice him, and they're trying to like, just like, run away from him and whatever. And he just kind of stumbles around after them, but he's not like trying to grab them or hit them or do anything like that. He's just kind of stumbling around after him and when he finally gets up to him he's just like he like slumps on the ground and is just like crying tearing at his hair right yeah so he he seems more childlike than dangerous so yeah I I felt like Carol and Maitland were really extreme Ian asks Carol about John and she explains that you know first of all he's her fiance but that when the, the sensorites started controlling them, that like the effect on John was far worse and that it drove him insane. And so they're worried that he'll be violent. But then, like I said, when John actually gets up to Susan and Barbara, like he kind of backs them up against somewhere where they can't get away. He's just crying and is upset. And he tells Barbara that she reminds him of his sister. And then he starts talking to thin air. Yeah. I mean, he's hearing voices. <laughs> But again, he doesn't seem dangerous. He seems more, like, afflicted. Like, something's being done to him that hurts him, but he's not going to hurt anyone else. hmm So, yeah, Maitland is cutting through the door lock. Then suddenly they hear a noise. And they turn to one of the windows, and there are two sensorite ships coming towards them. No, those are not sensorite ships. Those are space beans. They look like <laughs> beans. <laughs> they, do. they look like little glowing beans. They do. And so I've got two issues here. One, it's space. So why are we hearing ships? 
And second, if there was a sensor right there already that took the lock, why didn't we hear that sound when it left? Right. Right. So I've read speculation before that maybe the sound was an intimidation tactic. They wanted the humans to know that they were coming, so they like beamed the sound into their minds. But I think that's stretching. Yeah, it's a bit. So they talk about the fact that the sensorites are coming for a minute, and then they turn around and they see one of them at the window looking in. This is like a killer sort of story or something. It's like, it's right behind you. Ah! I mean, my note did say, oh my God, alien, in the window. (laughs) Yeah. And so again, then the question is, can they really do that? Or again, is that like some sort of psychic projection or something? Because otherwise they don't need to breathe or anything. We may never know. Yeah. So that's the cliffhanger. So episode two is The Unwilling Warriors. And Carol and Maitland are paralyzed again. Oh my gosh, they are such weak-minded creatures. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's supposed to be one of those things of they've been subjected to this over the course of at least months. And maybe that means that it's easier to do it once they've already, like, had it done to them before. Right. And Ian and Barbara, uh, I mean, the Doctor and Susan are special, but Ian and Barbara, it might be that they have better resistance just because this is all new to them and they haven't had it happen to them yet. You are giving them such benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Or maybe it's just because Ian is such a man and Barbara is just so cool. That's not any better. <laughs> I'm action man. You can't control me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but the doctor snaps Maitland out of it and gets him to start working on cutting the door again. And that's when John starts talking to the voices because the voices are telling him to scare Susan and Barbara. He's and like, he's saying he's not going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Don't make me. Mm hmm. Yeah, like, and, and, you know, we talked about Carolyn Maitland. The guy playing John is actually doing a really good job of trying to sell the idea of someone that has been in pain for a long time and is just completely at the end of his tether. Oh, no, I bought it. Yeah, yeah. He, he was, he's really, of the three people that we meet here, he is definitely the better actor. I bought every tomato that man was selling. I was, <laughs> I was in for it. Yeah. Oh, and the best part is, is while Barbara's trying to, like, calm him down and talk to him, mm. Ian's outside just pounding on the doors and screaming, Barbara! Yep. It's like, wow, that, there you go. There's your manly man right there. That's... He has a sensitive side, too. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. He's a modern man. I mean, somebody starts telling a bedtime story, he'll forget that, that she and Susan are even behind that door. <laughs> oh, man. I'm never going to let you're him never gonna, Yeah, I was about to say, you're never going to let that go. Nope. <laughs> and so, yeah, then the sensorites enter through the loading bay. They can tell that, like, in the, in the controls on the bridge. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So we get our sensorites. The feet. Yeah, why not... <laughs> Why don't, why don't you talk about about the sensorites, Juliet? I'm sure you have opinions. Well, I'm fairly certain that these were some of the some cheesy bodysuits that they had on here. They were like onesies, complete onesies, <laughs> yes. full-on turtleneck onesies that buttoned up the back. Yes. And the feet, they were like, I, I think I'm, what they did was cut cardboard in the shape of circles and stick <laughs> it in the feet so they're walking around on what looked like circles. Yes. Um, the masks, they weren't terrible. 
I mean, at mm-hmm. least they looked. They I couldn't see any seams, which were hidden by the ridiculous turtleneck onesies. Right. Well, and and they had the hair go upwards instead of the, like their beard hair go upwards instead of downwards. They, right. It had no eyelids. Yeah, it gave them an alien look, but also hid the hole in the mask for the mouth, because Mm -hmm. then that wouldn't move, like, with the mouth, because, you know, they're using, like, a rigid mask. So actually having the beard go upwards really helped to, like, sort of hide the problems with the mask. So that part, I think, works pretty well. Yeah, the masks made me believe in aliens. The, The outfits made me think cheesy. Right. And the circular feet. And the really bad thing is, not only do they have their shot start at their feet and then pan up, in the feet looks so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. One of them accidentally stands on the other one's foot. Yeah. You know, in that opening shot. It's so bad. I told you, cardboard circles. <laughs> yes. Apparently the actors didn't like the feet either. <laughs> Good. So I'm glad. I'm glad it's not just, you know, me having an issue with some weird looking costumes. Yeah. I did have to wonder by the end of this arc, how much did those actors who were playing sensorites absolutely despise those masks? Could they even see? Uh, I don't remember anyone saying anything about not being able to see. I do know that one of them talked about smoking and that the smoke would come out of the eye holes. They were smoking? <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the 60s. Everybody was smoking. Oh, my. It, I was like, you're smoking while wearing that? Wow. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the, the reason why they did that kind of thing is just because it was so hard to get them out that they didn't, you know, like during breaks, they wouldn't take them out of the costume. They'd just leave them in it. I mean, I've worn like latex masks and such. Like I had an extra lip prosthetic nose when I was Freddy Krueger. And just breathing into that nose all day, obviously the, cond- the condensation builds up in there and just like, drips mm-hmm. out of the bottom of the nose. I, have, I can only imagine that they were just like dripping into their suits. Oh, yeah. There's actually a story about that with, with <laughs> the, when we get to uh, the Ice Warriors about like actually when they pulled the bottom half of those costumes off and just turning them over and pouring water oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah but i think it was carol ann ford actually talking about how it was funny like during breaks when the dalek operators would smoke inside their dalek <laughs> and you'd see smoke coming out of the dalek. but yeah this is the 60s everybody was smoking of course they did <laughs> right you know, the funny thing is, you know, as much as later on in the story, they talk about how all the sensorites look the same. I actually thought they did a good job of having these masks that didn't look the same. I mean, their beard hair was different. Yeah, the beard hair was different. The shape of the mask was different. Even the eye holes were different. There's one of them we see later who's very tall and thin. Like, his face looks completely different from any of the other ones. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't feel like they looked so, like, oh, my God, I can't tell them about I mean, I get it's a commentary, right? It's commentary on people and saying that about, like, you know, all ex- Right. You know, like, all Chinese people look the same, as an example. That's not my opinion. That is just the thing that people would say at the time. When we come to that part, my comment on that was like, wait, are, are they saying that all sensorites look the same? Because that's really kind of racist. Wait, hold on. Even the sensorites think they look the same. Okay, maybe it's not. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I get that that's a deliberate commentary, but it's kind of funny that instead of making, they should have made the masks all look the same, but they didn't. <laughs> right, they actually took pains to make them look different. Right. But yeah, and so like Barbara is telling John that they feel safe with him and... They're trying to, like, comfort him, basically. And so because of that, he stands up more to the sensorites and is like, I won't do it. 
And so then Susan also comes up with the idea that maybe if she and Barbara both try to think bad things at the Censorites at the same time, maybe it will affect them. And so they think, we will defy you together. And yep. And then the Censorites clutch their heads. And then Susan passes out. Because mm-hmm. I guess that took a lot of effort. Yeah. And then that's also, though, when Maitland finally gets through the door and Ian gets in. And so they don't show this. They sort of skip ahead a little bit. John starts sleeping. You know, he, they have him in a bed somewhere where he's sleeping and, you know, they've gotten everybody else together. And Susan is talking about how she heard hundreds of voices in her mind. And the doctor is like, that was really dangerous trying to do that. But I like that the doctor just, you know, he's totally cool with the fact that, you know, Susan, you know, projected telepathically at these aliens. I mean, it's nothing, mm-hmm. I mean, it was just a dangerous thing to do, but the fact that you did it does not surprise him. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this is, I mean, this one, I will say this one is not a highly regarded story in fandom, but for Carolyn Ford and for the character of Susan, this is a pretty good one because this does sort of develop Susan a bit and gives her something that was sort of hers, you know, that's that's unique to her with the psychic powers. And we sort of get the whole butting heads of her with the doctor come up a little bit of her you know she's growing up mm-hmm. and she doesn't just have to do whatever he says and then we find out that even though john's hair is white he's 30 i mean i just honestly thought he was a light blonde but you know hey. well yeah it's hard to tell in black and white but yeah i mean but then maitland says to the doctor his hair was white and the doctor's like well there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> <laughs> and he says in a man of 30 and so then, yeah, you realize that what the sensorites have been doing to him has also had like a physical effect on him. Mm-hmm. And Ian hears John mutter in his sleep dreams of avarice. And Ian says there's an expression rich beyond the dreams of avarice. I've never heard this expression before. Only in this story have I ever heard that expression. I swear I've heard it before, but if, I mean, I might just be thinking that I heard it before because it was a cool phrase. Mm, sure. But so then Ian realizes that John probably found something. And so it wasn't an accident that he went crazy. Like the sensorites must have deliberately targeted him. So then they again suggest that maybe we need to talk to the sensorites. And Maitland doesn't think that's a good idea. Yeah, but I mean, Doctor just wants to, he loves knowledge. Yep. So the sensorites get new orders from their planet because they have these disc things that they can put to their head and that's what allows them to communicate telepathically. They, they can like receive from another sensorite if they're sending without the discs, but to send thoughts, they have to put the discs on. And so they talk to the people on their planet and they're told that they need to find the person that says we defy you and that if anyone gets in the way, then they need to summon the warriors to destroy them. And then we're back on the bridge. So this one has a lot of cuts. <laughs> it really did. Because this one kind of like, in that way, does pace things up just a little bit. Because I'm so used to the previous stories where it's like we're in a scene and we don't see anything else that's happening until the end of that scene. But this one does kind of jump around quite a bit between locations and cutting. But yeah, we're back on the bridge and the Doctor and Ian are looking at the spectrograph that John had made of the planet. And Carol mentions that the first time the sensorites attacked was when John was looking at the spectrograph. 
Right. And yeah, so <laughs> I mentioned that Ian tries to give a science lesson and Susan's just like, I know, and just runs <laughs> off. <laughs> He's trying to explain to her how a spectrograph works. And then Barbara mentions to Carol, because Carol's asking more about them, and Barbara's just like, well, the doctor's trying to get us back to our own time. And Carol, again, doesn't act, like, surprised or think that that's strange or anything. So maybe just it is common for them to run into time travelers. I don't know. And then Susan has a weird line. She says, isn't it a better thing to travel, hopefully, than to arrive? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, that's just weird, Susan. <laughs> Pretty sure you get really sick of being cooped up in the TARDIS with your grandfather after a while. Yeah. Hopefully. But yeah, then the doctor finally figures it out that there's molybdenum on the uh, sun sphere that is a real element on the periodic table. It has a very high melting point, and so it's important in the construction of spaceships. And John happened to discover, that's what he discovered. Right. And so obviously he got really, they say he got really so excited that his mind just opened up with all the possibilities. And I hate to say that's what humans do. We see a shiny and before, we don't always immediately grab for it, but our brains grab for it. Mm -hmm. And obviously I can't blame the aliens for having to been like, oh crap. Yeah. I mean, this is getting ahead a little bit, but the first elder later talks about the fact that they saw in his mind a fleet of ships coming to the planet to strip mine it, basically. Mm-hmm. It's not saying that that's what, what was going to happen. I mean, John, right. he seems like a pretty decent dude after, he, after everything happens. I don't think it, but the first thing you think of is like, woo, possibilities. Yeah, I think you're giving him too much credit. I mean, I think that that's the whole point of this ship, right? This ship because there's only three people on there. It looks like Carol and Maitland are like a pilot and a navigator. And John's there to assess planets for their mineral value or whatever. So I think this is what the human race does now. Is they're just like cruising around the galaxy looking for planets to strip mine and get like any valuable <laughs> stuff. And yeah, after all this is said and done, and again, we're jumping ahead. I think John is like, I'm just done. <laughs> I just don't think that they would have done it. Like, had they realized the sensorites are there and so on like that, they would have been like, well, maybe we should talk first. I mean, this coming from the person who wants to burn it all down, I'm giving them a lot of credit. Right. <laughs> well, I do think, and this is kind of interesting, because it's always fascinating to me how well Doctor Who hangs together without the writers really collaborating, because it's kind of consistent this kind of consistent view of like how the future unfolds in the Doctor Who universe mm -hmm. for the first thousand years, say from 2000 to 3000. And basically you'll find out that the earth becomes an empire and there's, it's a very authoritarian government and there's big corporations and all this stuff comes back up later. So like I say, I, <laughs> I'm a little worried about the sense sphere, but we'll get back to that. So, yeah, once the doctor brings up the molybdenum again, explains about it, Maitland and Carol are frozen by the sensorites again because they don't want them to know what's down there. Right. I mean, I can't blame them. They're afraid. Right. And then Ian and Barbara go to look for the sensorites. And this is the bit that I don't understand because once they find the sensorites... They, they run away? Right. They run away. They're like, oh, crap. We found them. Now what? But I will say the music while they're hunting and mm -hmm. building the tension was really good. I actually felt yeah. the tension in that scene. 
Right, and this is where I think it's really good that they were able to use the larger studio because, like, there are a lot of rooms on the ship, and there is a lot of moving through the ship as they first look for the centroids, and then when they find them. But then it's like, oh, well, let's lock them behind some doors. And I'm like, but they already attacked Maitland and Carol from a different room. So, like, locking them isn't going to stop them from telepathically attacking anybody. But, okay. But, yeah, once they find them, Ian tells Barbara, oh, we don't know how to lock the doors. Go find out. And so she runs back immediately. And then Ian just slowly backs away. He, like, grabs a tool, and he just sort of, like, holds it up menacingly. So the sensorites are slowly inching forward. Ian's slowly inching back. It was pretty ridiculous looking. It's this long bit of them. You know, every once in a while, like, they get a little too close, so he sort of looks like he's about to hit them with the thing, and so they back up a little bit more. But it is supposed to be about the tension of it, because we don't know anything about these guys yet, other than that they've been mentally attacking these people on this ship. And have round feet. Right. (laughs) But yeah, this goes on for a bit. So when Barbara comes back, Ian's at the point where he really is about to hit one of the sensorites. But Barbara's like, well, don't do that. Have any of them tried to attack you? And he's like, no. (laughs) And so it's one of those things where it's the fear of the other that is Mm -hmm. the problem rather than them actually being aggressive. Well, I will point out they they are kind of being aggressive telepathically. That is true. It is true. But yeah, they finally like back up into the bridge and they lock the bridge door. And so it's like, instead of locking the sensorites in a room, they basically locked themselves in the bridge. And I wanted to point out, I actually have a note that says, how was that, how was what he did any different from them opening doors? Right. Looked exactly the same. But yeah, but then that's when Ian says that they seemed as frightened of him as he was of them. And so the sensorites grabbed their weapon, which my note here says ping pong tennis racket. <laughs> I still say pastry thing. Yeah, to me, it looks like a tennis racket, but it's the size of a ping pong paddle. <laughs> so it's a tiny little thing. So they basically zap the lock with it, and they wait outside. The doctor's getting Carol and Maitland back to their senses, and the doctor's are saying again, like, we need to talk to the sensorites so that, you know, we have a dialogue, figure out what's going on. But that's when Susan sort of zones out, and we find out that not only did the thing with her and Barbara pack the sensorites, like, she is actually telepathic. Mm-hmm. That and that's why she's the out. one that dropped after that. I'm not sure Barbara, thinking we will defy you, did anything. Right. <laughs> I think it was all Susan, basically. Now, they really don't like the do- when the doctor gets emphatic, though. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's because they don't like loud noises or if it's because his thoughts are also loud. If he's her grandfather, I mean, it makes sense for him to also have some telepathic ability. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is something we will find out later, that all Time Lords have some... They're not, like, super telepathic, but they all have some, like, mild telepathic ability. So she tells them that the Sensorites want to talk, and the Doctor says that's fine as long as they agree not to harm them, and so she lets the Sensorites in, and the Sensorites say that they can't allow them to leave because they know about the molybdenum, and Ian says that they don't care about that, but then they say they trusted Earthmen once before to their cost. Uh-huh, yeah, now we know. Yep. Earth people bad. Yeah, well, and, and the thing is, they sort of hint at there being contact with other races as well, because they say at one point, 
I don't know that it's here. They say something about aliens always say we want to talk, but then what they really do is they want to take things or something like that. So you get the impression that maybe the sensorites have been picked on a little bit. Just a tiny bit. So that could be why they are so afraid. But yeah, they said that the last time humans came, it caused some sort of affliction. And so they can allow that to happen again. What they've done is they've created like a special like human zoo for them down on the planet and they can go live there. Because that sounds like fun. Yeah, exactly. And the doctor's like, no, not going to do it. But the sensorites tell him that they don't have a choice. And he tells them that he'll give them more trouble than they've bargained for if they don't return the lock to the TARDIS. Then while they're sort of talking amongst themselves, the doctor says that he notices that their eyes are the opposite of what we would expect, which is their eyes dilate in light and contract in darkness. And I wrote on that, how in the world did that happen? Because like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Because the reason the eyes contract in darkness is to let in more light. Right. I mean, sorry, it's contract in light. Contract in light, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> dilate in darkness. Yeah, so it's because uh, you're trying to maximize the amount of light that your eye can see. So the sensorites are opposite from that. So they're blind in darkness completely. It's like, how would this be an advantage that would develop in them? You, you get what I'm saying? Like, right. where's the, yeah, where's the basis for that? So yeah, anyway, it doesn't make sense. It's an alien species. We can just go with it. Right. So he basically realizes that they probably are terrified in darkness because they wouldn't be able to see at all. Mm-hmm. And another one of the fun lines that I really love is the doctor tells Ian that telepathy isn't a prerequisite of the sensorites because sometimes he knows what he's thinking. <laughs> so then again, Susan's talking with the sensorites in her mind, and then she starts going. She he goes over to the door, she opens the door, she steps out with them. She tells them that basically she's going to go down to their planet with them because they said that they are going to kill everyone if she doesn't. And the doctor is super angry about this. Of course he is. But that is our cliffhanger. So now we have to get, now we have to rescue Susan. Right. And so that is episode three, Hidden Danger. (laughs) And Anna and Barbara go after the Sensorites, because they're still on the ship. And Susan tells them, you know, back off. And, oh, this is where the line is from the Sensorites. They say, intruders from other planets always say they want to talk, but all they need to do is destroy. Yep, and there it is. I was like, sounds like the Sensorites have had some really bad experiences. Mm-hmm. But then the Doctor comes in, and he's just rude, because he tells Susan that she doesn't have the ability to represent them. And she's basically like, stop treating me like a child. And this is while the Sensorites are right here, right? I mean, it's not like this is some quiet thing or, you know, some moment afterwards. It's just the two of them. They're having this argument. And Ian and Barbara are there and the Sensorites are there. I mean, it makes me still wonder about the age gap between them. At what, how old is Susan? At what point does she consider an adult in their species? Well, I mean, I know that their intention when they were writing this was that she's comparable to, like, a 15-year-old human. Yeah, she's still kind of young. Yeah. So she eventually comes, like, you know, they go back and forth a little bit, but she does walk over to him, and then the Sensorites pull out their gun thing, their tennis rackets or whatever you want to call them, (laughs) and then Ian turns the light out, and so then they're afraid... So then when they turn the lights on, the doctor basically tells them that they were helpless in the darkness, but 
they chose not to hurt them, so he's hoping that that will give some sort of credit with them. And he tells them that he wants the lock and their freedom. Mm-hmm. And so the Sunsrites say that they'll have to ask for new orders, and that's when the doctor starts shouting at them, and they do not like it. Or I don't even know it's really shouting. He gets loud. He does, he does loud, angry talking, and that freaks them out. It really does. I mean, they definitely look like victims of abuse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they cower a lot when he's doing that. And we do find out later that they're very sensitive to sound. But I do also like the idea that you have that the doctor's thoughts are loud. <laughs> I could see that. He seems like a very loud person. Right. And Barbara and Ian are together. And Barbara's like, man, I've never seen the doctor so angry. Which is kind of funny because he tried to throw you guys off the ship and like accused you guys of sabotage. And I'm <laughs> pretty sure he looked angrier then. But okay, Barbara. But yeah, Ian's like, oh man, the Sunstrites must have controlled Susan. And Barbara's just like shaking her head. <laughs> she's like, no, he, she's growing up, Ian. Yeah. She knows what's up. Then Ian has them. I, this, this isn't like plot important wise, but I just wanted to note this. Is Ian starts going like, hey, Barbara, do you think if we had those mind disc thingies that we'd be able to read each other's minds too? <laughs> and I just can't help but think that he's having like some sort of weird kinky fantasies about them reading each other's minds. Oh, you know he is. He's totally like doing that. And, and later on, which I'm sure it would have been something not nearly as cool as Picard and Crusher reading each other's thoughts. <laughs> All right, let's not go there because I don't think that was cool at all. That was like, oh, we'll do this. We'll we'll like figure out like what each other's thinking, and then we'll decide that that episode didn't matter at all. <laughs> and so yeah, then the doctor and Susan are talking again. He's basically saying that she set herself against him, and she's basically saying, "I have opinions too on like how we should do things." And the doctors, I mean, the doctors make a good point about the fact that he's much older than she is and that he's accumulated a lot of knowledge and wisdom. And Susan says that, or she asks if she's going to always be treated like a silly little child. And he says, only if you act like one. Uh, says the man who goes running off by himself. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go take a smoke over here by myself. <laughs> so ridiculous so yeah but then Susan's point is that because she's able to talk to the sensorites telepathically that she understands them better than any of them and he tells her though that's fine but you still need to talk we still need to discuss our options mm-hmm. but she tells him that she's not going to be pushed around like a child anymore I mean good for you Susan yeah no no I mean and all this feels like it's like some people complain about this part, but I think that this is actually, yeah, it's different from Doctor Who now because nobody has that same kind of relationship to the Doctor, but it feels really real to me of a kid that's growing up and doesn't want to just be told what to do. I mean, I'm pretty sure I acted like that, so. Right. <laughs> so John's telling Carol that he still is hearing the sense rights in his mind and they're telling him to forget and Maitland then comes and tells them that they're going to go down to the sense sphere because the sensorites have agreed to cure John and that they're going to take the doctor, Susan and Ian as well, but they're going to leave Barbara and Maitland on the ship as basically like security to make sure that they behave themselves on the planet. And really though, it's an excuse so that Jacqueline Hill can go on vacation for two weeks. It makes sense. But man, I have to admit because maybe it was just the acting but again, Maitland was very suspicious to me. I was like wondering, if he, is he in league? 
Yeah, he's over on a different show somewhere. <laughs> Mentally. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it. Now Ian's saying, oh, I don't like splitting up. It always leads to trouble. It's like, where were you? Right? <laughs> like, back on Scaro. Oh, my and God. You guys are all like, let's all go in a different direction. Oh, and let's not forget Marinus, where our party got split how many times? Yep, three times. Ugh. And that's when the Sunsurrets finally explain about what happened. Like, ten years ago, there were five humans that arrived. And then they argued with each other. Two of them went into the ship and it exploded, but they believe that all five of them died. Of course, this is like, it's so obvious at this point, the way that they tell the story. So they figure that the three other men stowed aboard and then they fought for control of the ship and that's why it blew up. And then the blowing up caused some disease to happen. Right. And so they've been dying ever since. And the doctor's like, I can fix you. Right. Well, yeah, and that's the thing. The doctor is like, yeah, we'll be able to negotiate with this because I'll figure out how to cure it. Like, he's so confident. There's never a question in the doctor's mind that he won't figure out, like, how to cure this. It'll just take him a while. Right. But he's like, yeah, this is what we can use as a bargaining chip to get the lock back. So, yeah, then there's a cut to the planet, and we see the two ruling sensorites who are the first and second elder, and the city administrator's there, too. And they basically have these different things that they wear to sort of like show like their status and so the first elder has two sashes the second elder has one sash and the city administrator has a black collar on his outfit Mm -hmm. so out of curiosity did you have any thoughts about the way the sensorite city looks no not a single thought okay it was sort of meh it didn't leave a massive impression on me well i mean there's not It's got no right angles. It's all, like, sort of rounded and stuff, like, in all the shapes and everything. So Mm -hmm. it's supposed to look alien. But, yeah, like you, I I would never have noticed that if I didn't hear the designer talking about it. (laughs) Just kind of curious. But, again, it seems more spacious than a lot of the places that we've seen. So we still are getting sort of the benefits of the the larger studio because there are a lot of really big open spaces in the city. So the second elder is concerned that the first elder is bringing all these humans to the planet. But the first elder, you sort of get the impression that this guy, he's like a pretty good wise leader type because he says that it's a failure of all beings that they judge through their own eyes. He's like our Aztec dude from the last arc. Right, exactly. And so the first elder says they basically have to build up trust. And so that's why he's inviting them to the palace. And so they're sort of going to make the first gesture and hopefully they can work together. Because he says that he senses a lot of intelligence in the doctor and that he's hoping that they, he can help them. Mm-hmm. And, and the other one's like, they're animals. Mm. Oh, and then somebody mentioned that they elected the first elder because to lead because of his massive brain or something like that <laughs> yeah. like that's a really weird thing to say yeah but i also wish we elected our people to lead us because of their <laughs> intelligence so man <laughs> kind of envious at the same time so the administrator who's sort of hanging there in the back, like he's basically i guess like the mayor of the of the capital city but he's basically just being a yes man as, as long as the first elder is there and as soon as the first elder goes off He's basically talking to the second elder. Is like, how is it that he doesn't listen to you? You're his advisor. Like, you know, the humans are dangerous. We should be worried about them. There's always one. Yeah, and he tells them that he's got the disintegrator aimed at this room where they're going to bring the humans. And But then the second elder gets upset because he's basically being like, hey, only the elders can order the use of the disintegrator. You're not supposed to do anything with that. And he says, so it's fine, like, leave it as it is, but don't do anything else unless I tell you to. Right. So then the doctor and everybody arrives, 
they learn that the Sensorites have a caste system. Yeah, I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So they have elders, warriors, scientists, and then like the general population. And so the Sensorites that's telling them all this says all are happy. Because they, they seem like surprised about a caste system and they seem kind of off about it. But he tells them, well, everybody's happy. And Ian says, but some are happier than others. <laughs> and then John starts saying that he senses an evil mind somewhere nearby. Yeah, John's really connected to these guys. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if they've been in his head all this time, there's some connection there. And so then, yeah, when they, they go in to meet with the first elder, the first elder has John and Carol go to the place where they're going to work on John to, to make him better. Mm-hmm. And then we have this, it's so bad, where John looks right at the camera after the first elder has talked to him and says, he is a good man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, it's very nice that you've heavy-handedly told us that we can trust the first elder. That's great. The one time his acting didn't do it for me. I know. <laughs> That's so heavy-handed in that delivery. So then Ian, the doctor, and Susan, they sit at these tables that are provided for them. They're given, like, fruit and water. But then the first elder gets upset because they're not being given the spring water that he gets. And they're just getting, like, the water from the city aqueduct. And he tells them, no, go bring the spring water for them. And Ian says, well, I'm really thirsty, so if you don't mind, I'm going to drink from this until the other water arrives. And he says, okay, that's fine. It's not fine. Right. (laughs) This is also really heavy-handed. But while all that's going on, the city administrator is getting ready to, like, blast them with the disintegrator. He's just like, why should we wait to figure out if they're good or not? We know they're bad. Let's just kill them right now. (laughs) But then the second elder shows up and sees what he's doing. He's like, stop. I'm going to take away the firing key to this thing so it can't be used. And he goes off. And so, yeah, that's where we have the conversation where the first elder mentions they saw in John's mind about the fleet of ships. And so to them, killing him, killing Maitland and Carol would have been worse. So keeping them trapped was a better solution. I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a moral... (laughs) I totally see the moral quandary there, at least. But they say that, yeah, because John was so excited that basically his mind had no defense. So that mm-hmm. when they went, reached out to connect with it, it drove him crazy. Yeah, poor John. Yeah. So, yeah, then the first elder is explaining to them about the sashes and how he can, they can tell them apart. But that, you know, they can't figure out the cause of this disease that's been happening. But then the doctor's, like, questioning him, and it's like, you start wondering about these big brains the sensorites are going to have, because there's a lot of really <laughs> obvious stuff that comes out right away, like, because the first elder says, like, it hits everyone indiscriminately, and the doctor's like, well, does it hit the elders? And, well, no, not the elders, just everybody else. Mm-hmm. And then, as Ian's drinking his water, he starts coughing. <laughs> and then Ian, Ian in distress. Yeah. Uh, and the doctor, this is another heavy-handed one, the doctor is just like, as Ian's coughing in a really loud, overblown way, he's like, yes, it might be a clue. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I told you, the doctor swings in a pendulum. Yeah. about Ian and Barbara. Yeah. But, yeah, Ian's basically th- complaining about a sore throat. And then he jumps out of the chair on the table, like, sort of stands up and then falls over. <laughs> Instead of just, like, sort of slumping over or whatever. He's got this big dramatic fall onto the floor. Oh, come on, he hasn't done anything dramatic since he was pounding on a door. Like- right. <laughs> and so the first elder tells them that this is the signs of the disease. 
and he tells him there's no hope that he's dying. So that's our cliffhanger. Is Ian going to die from an alien disease? I mean, the, the title of the next episode doesn't tell us whether or not he's going to die or, right. or live. It's a race against death. Yes. So, again, the doctor is still trying to find out more about the disease, so he's asking the elder about it. The elder says that the disease doesn't appear to be contagious. People don't give it to each other. And even Susan's like, well, this is weird because we've done everything together. And why is Ian sick and we're not? And that's when the doctor says, well, he did drink the different water. Mm-hmm. And the elders, though, is like, oh, it can't be the water. Everybody except the elders drinks from that water and not everybody gets sick. <laughs> it's like, man, you guys have like no medical science on this planet, <laughs> do you? <laughs> Massive intellect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the doctor says, like, it seemed more like a poison than a sickness. Which, yeah. again, I have to question, how did they not already figure this out? Because it's very different effects on a body between a disease and a poison, like, and how your body responds. Okay, so maybe they don't elect their leaders based on intelligence, but literally the size of their brain. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. <laughs> And that's pretty much what they actually said, because they talked about the size of his brain. That's why we elected you to be our leader. So maybe that's it. Not intelligence, but the literal size of your brain. Maybe he was a philosophy major. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't need to know about science. But that does make him good at diplomacy. It does. <laughs> and then, yeah, the elder tells them that nobody lives more than three days once the symptoms start to show up. And then that's the hilarious thing also is so the doctor seems to think like, oh, that's plenty of time. And I'm like, oh, yes, this is science fiction science rather than real science. I mean, three days. We can do so much in three days. (laughs) Exactly. COVID-19, we can get that licked in three days. It's no problem. But the doctor does try to use this because he's like, hey, just give me the lock back and I'll get into my ship and I've got all kinds of equipment there. I'll have this thing cured in no time at all. But yeah, basically, long story short, because there, there's a little bit more to this, but basically the first elder talks to the second elder, and the second elder says, eh, maybe this is a fake-out to try to get their lock back, so don't do it. And so they, they don't let the doctor have the lock. They tell him that basically he can use a lab. Because, of course, he might bring back an army. Right, exactly. But then the weird thing here, and I have never heard of this, but it seems like a bad idea. The doctor tells Susan to give Ian salt water to drink. Oh my gosh. I was like, he, he mentions, I was like, did he say giving him water and salt? Yeah. Why would you do this? He says it's an old fashioned remedy. And I'm like, that's not remedying anything. <laughs> that's no. just going to dehydrate him. You're, oh my gosh. In fact, the worst part is you don't even know which water. So unless you get the special water that only the elders drink, you got to be really careful. Right. I think they did get the spring water because they were brought this like the like the sensor had arrived with the tray with the spring water later in the scene. Water and salt. But yeah, the salt, I have never heard of that before. I mean, maybe it is an old-timey remedy, but there were some societies that used urine to put on wounds. So I mean, just because something's an old-fashioned remedy doesn't mean it's any good. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So yeah, the city administrator is just kind of lurking in the room where they're trying to help out John. They put on this device around John's head that I don't know if you remember from Ghostbusters. Oh my gosh, Rick Moranis is the, the, the colander <laughs> yeah. on his head with all the tubes. Yes, yes that was looks, exactly what I was thinking. It looks a lot like that. That was exactly what I was thinking when I saw it. 
but the idea is like it's supposed to like block out all the thoughts, the outside thoughts from John, so that it mm-hmm. can help to like build up his mental defenses again. Yeah, but he's still not doing well. Yeah, because it's gonna take time, and he keeps saying that it'll take time, it'll take time, it won't be an instant thing. But the city administrator, he's just lurking in there, and he's just like, "Why are we helping this guy? We should just kill him." And John says at one point, he's like, "Evil." Yeah, because the city administrator finds out about Ian being sick and that the doctor is going to try to find a cure. And he spins this whole theory about how they're just trying to get them to distrust their water supply. And it's one of the necessities and it's just a way to sort of undermine them. And John's saying evil because the administrator is the evil person. But he's like, see, see, even he knows that they're evil. Oh my gosh, it's so bad. (laughs) Yeah. But then Carol comes in and she talks to the administrator like he's the scientist that's working on John. And he's like, I'm the city administrator. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. If I hadn't seen, like, I, I don't know how we'd tell you guys apart without your collars and sashes and things because you all look the same to us, basically, is what she says. And that gives him this idea for the first time as in, in his entire Sensorite life. Yeah. He says, I have never thought of that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Massive brains. Well, to be fair, if it's such a societal, like, it's one of those things that it takes someone from outside a society to propose an idea that's such a cultural taboo before you can even consider it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I can sort of see where they're coming from with that idea of, like, in their society, it's so, like, no one would even consider it because it's just not something that, like, anyone would ever, like, suggest. But once she suggests it, then it's sort of like, oh. Mm-hmm. The next scene is one where that's where the first elder finally tells the doctor that he won't be able to go into the TARDIS and that he'll have to use the lab there on the planet. And the doctor talks, like he yells and shouts at him. And that's when we get told explicitly that they're very sensitive to sound. So it makes sense for them to like cower from loud noises and shouting. Right. So the city administrator has like an aide that tells him that the firing key, when the second elder took it away, he gave it to the chief warrior. And then the first elder comes up and tells the administrator that the doctor's working in one of the labs and that they have to give him anything that he asks for, basically, every cooperation. And then the administrator, once the first elder walks off, tells his aide to get the second elder to come to the disintegrator room because he's got an idea. Yeah. Yeah, we know what the idea is. Yeah. <laughs> Although, to be fair, I... D- well, we'll get to that. I, I, we'll get to that. So the doctor thinks the symptoms sound like atropine poison, which I've never heard of atropine poison before, but I believe that is real because it's something that they say later. Now, isn't atropine what they, what they use in the movie, the rock that they have to inject into their hearts when they come in contact with the gas? I don't know. I'm almost positive that that's what they call it. Okay. Some things are poisonous and given in certain ways and not in others. Maybe. <laughs> not Iocane powder, I know that. <laughs> so basically, the doctor has this whole discussion with the scientists, and you find out they tested the water, like, one time from one place. They found that it didn't have anything in it, and they decided that all the water was good. Because it all comes from the same aqueduct. Mm-hmm. So we see the problem already. Yeah. <laughs> again, it seems like if this has been going on for 10 years, this is crazy that they haven't tried again. Again, huge brains. Right. Or they talk about the fact that there's like a whole Sensorite nation, so there must be other cities. 
If this is the city where people are dying, why don't they just leave and move to another city? I don't know. <laughs> I must admit, their brains makes it impossible for them to travel. <laughs> so yeah, so we cue this montage because the doctor finds out that basically there are like 10 districts where the water from the aqueduct pours into. And so he has them test all 10 districts and they find the poison in one of the districts. And there's this whole montage of them taking vials of water and testing them and writing down on this sheet that has this really nice cursive script. Who knew the censorites did calligraphy? (laughs) First district, second district. And they're writing negative next to each one as they test it. But then they finally find the one that has the poison. And it's exactly what the doctor thought. It's atropine poison. By the way, yes, I had to check. I had to look it up. Uh, Atropine is indeed. And it was one of the things that they used in the rock. And it really is one of the chemicals that you have to use to counter the effects of sarin gas. Interesting. But I'm guessing in certain quantities, it's probably dangerous, which is why it can be a poison. Oh, come on. Water in certain quantities is dangerous. Well, yeah, Yeah, because it keeps you from breathing. (laughs) (laughs) Then the first elder, because the first elder had asked for regular reports. They send him the report saying, hey, we found the cure, so they're going to send something to Ian soon. Because Ian and Susan are still at the palace. They basically are sitting out this episode because even though they're in it, Ian's just writhing around on a bed and Susan's just there like holding him down and that's their entire role this whole episode. (laughs) Aw, it was sad. Yeah. Uh, But here's where they're doing something clever and it's one of those things that you probably didn't notice it, but looking back on the show as a whole, this episode is where they do the format change. Because Barbara's gone, Ian's incapacitated, and Susan's just there kind of like being nursemaid to to Ian, the doctor suddenly becomes the central figure of the show. That's true. When Ian and Barbara have been like our stars, basically, up until now, this is when they sort of reconfigure things. And from here on, we're going to see the doctor getting more of that spotlight and becoming more of the central figure of the show. I hadn't even realized, but yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, something that I, as much as I've watched this show until I read it in a book where people were analyzing the show, I never thought about it. And I was like, oh man, that's right. (laughs) I never thought about that. Because I always think about that happening once Ian and Barbara leave. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that's when the Doctor becomes a central figure. But I'm like, really, it starts with this. Hmm. Then uh, the second elder comes to meet with the city administrator, but then he, the administrator has two of other sensorites grab him and he takes the sash away and he puts it on, you know, he takes his collar off and puts the sash on. Basically now he's going to be the second elder. And no one will know. Well, here's the thing. All right. So everybody says that, but he's very clear in what he says. He says, most sensorites don't know the elders on site. It's true. It makes sense. So, like, he never goes to the first elder dressed as the second elder, because theoretically the first elder would be like, you're not the second elder, I recognize him. He says that, you know, so basically he only uses this disguise around scientists or the soldiers. He also can't use it to speak telepathically, to communicate. Right, because they would know that the mind wasn't right. So, yeah, he can't do that either. So I do feel like they did kind of give a little bit of an out there that, of course, people that the second elder knows closely or sees on a daily basis would know what he looks like. It's really more of he's just masquerading in his clothes because most people would just see the sash and assume, well, you're the second elder. 
But then he, oh, he also tells the second elder that he has his family hostage, and so he needs to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that this cure the doctor's coming up with is poison, but he's going to try to kill them all off. Because, of course, because they're strangers. Right. They're the other. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, the doctor's checking on John and Carol, and the scientist approaches with the first batch or the first vial of the antidote. So he tells him, okay, you take that to Ian and make up a big batch of it for everybody else. But then he starts thinking about it, and he's like, well, it's weird that the poison only shows up in one place at a time and then changes. Mm-hmm. So something's not right about this. And Carol's like, well, why are you even bothering? Because you came up with a cure. And the doctor's like, well, why have a cure if you can just stop it from happening? Right. And so this is another change, too, because up until this point, whenever there's like a dangerous situation or something bad happening, if the doctor has a route to the TARDIS, he would take that. Oh, yeah, he bolts. Right, he bolts. This is the first, because the doctor satisfied the bargain he made with the first elder. He's come up with the cure. At this point, he could tell him, okay, I've made the cure. Give me the lock back and we're going. But he doesn't do that. He stays to solve the problem just because it's the right thing to do rather than, you know, because he's going to get anything out of it. Right. I mean, that's kind of nice. Yeah, we're slowly morphing the doctor's character also to make him more of a heroic figure. So yeah, like John's still muttering about enemies and stuff, and so the doctor tells Carol, pay attention. I don't think that he's as out of it as he seems, and we should pay attention to what he's saying. But then he leaves, because he's going off to the aqueduct to see if he can find out why the water is being poisoned. But yeah, that's when the city administrator, he's telling his ally, because his ally is worried, he's like, they're going to see through this. And he's like, no, 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 most people don't see the elders in person. And when they do see them, they're from far away. He's like, this is going to work. And so when the scientist comes by that has the cure for Ian, he talks to him. And he also does a voice imitation of the second elder. Yep. So that's there. And he gets the scientist to come back. He's like, oh, I'll take this to the human. You go back. And once the scientist is out of sight, he just throws it on the ground and shatters it. Of course. That's what he does. And he tells his friend, because his, his friend is like, well, wait, what if they're telling the truth and this is the cure? He's like, well, this is the test. If Ian dies, <laughs> you know, that he was really sick. But if he lives, then he wasn't sick in the first place and they were just trying to trick us. So if she's a witch, she'll float. <laughs> right. And if she sinks, then, oh, well, she wasn't a witch, but, oh, well, she's dead. But then, yeah, we go forward a little bit in time, and Susan is wondering why the cure hasn't arrived for Ian yet. So she goes off to the laboratory to find out what's happening, and she brings back a cure for Ian. But meanwhile, the scientist is showing the doctor the aqueduct, and he tells the doctor that it's dark in there, Every time they try to light it, it fails for some reason or another. And oh, by the way, there are horrible monsters living there. They've never seen one, but they can hear them. Oh, of course there are monsters. <laughs> and the doctor is like, oh yeah, this is way too perfect. The two things the sensorites don't like, like loud noises and darkness. You can tell he knows that some, you know, somebody's in there right. because it's just too perfect. So he tells the sensor right not to worry. He'll just go in there. He'll check it out. And he's got a flashlight. So he'll get that taken care of. I mean, at least it's an actual flashlight. Right. 
although I don't know if you noticed when they actually show inside the aqueduct when the doctor's in there, it's a spotlight that yes. they're using in front of him to be the flashlight. That is way more light than you're ever going to get from a flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, oh wait, we won't we won't question that. Maybe it's some like special like alien flashlight. So Susan does come back with the antidote for Ian, and she tells the first elder that the scientist said that the second elder took it from him. And so he doesn't understand why the second elder took it, but then didn't bring it himself. But then the scientist comes in and tells the first elder that the doctor went into the aqueduct. And the first elder is basically like, oh, might as well give up on the doctor now. He's dead. (laughs) Long story short, it's a much longer conversation than that. And of course, that freaks out Susan and Ian, and he explains that they've sent expeditions into the aqueduct. Very few people ever come back, and the ones that do just speak about terrible things that they've seen there, or that have been, I mean, I guess he doesn't say seen, he says they speak of terrible things. Right. And so then Ian, from his deathbed, (laughs) is like, we've got to go get the doctor out. And so because he can barely walk, Susan has to go with him. And so I'm like, this is a great idea. If there really are dangerous monsters in the aqueduct, Let's have Ian with Susan supporting him stumble through there to try to find the doctor. That's, that's oh come on, you know that he improves so rapidly. That's he does. It is kind of ridiculous how much better he gets without resting. But hey, that's how antidotes work, right? You just drink it and you're back to normal. Apparently, from what I've seen. <laughs> so the city administrator is back with the second elder. The first elder is trying to think at the second elder. He's trying to talk with him telepathically. So the city administrator just tells him to tell him what the first elder is saying, but he doesn't let him, he doesn't let the second elder have his disc so that he can talk back. So the second elder tells him that the doctor, Susan, and Ian have all gone into the aqueduct. And so the administrator's super happy because he's just like the first elder. He's like, we can write all three of them off. (laughs) (laughs) Because monsters will eat them. Yep. So yeah, Ian and Susan go into the aqueduct, and then we cut to the doctor who's further in there, and he finds deadly nightshade on the ground, which is, I guess, what you make atropine poison from. That okay. at least I have heard of. I have heard of nightshade. I have. Oh I, yeah. I had not heard of atropine poison. But then I'm wondering, wait, does it grow in the sense sphere naturally? <laughs> that would be kind of weird, but okay. Yeah, or did the humans bring it when they came before? And if they did, why did they happen to have nightshade with them? And I'm surprised that it just happens to grow randomly. Yeah. Just to get you, did you drop it? <laughs> yeah. But then we hear the growl of the monster, and the doctor looks really worried, and that is the cliffhanger. Yep, we got monsters. Yeah. Theoretically. I mean, that's what that growl sounds like. It's either that or someone's really hungry. Because I'm pretty sure Ian never actually got the chance to eat. He's been starving since the first episode. Well, that's true. That's true, because he, he, he did his dramatic fall before he got to eat. But yeah, now we're on episode five, which is Kidnap. Oh, maybe Ian's just sustaining himself on the salt. <laughs> oh my god, I cannot believe you just said that. I do love me some salt. So the doctor like yells out and Ian and Susan hear him. So they run over to him and they find him. He's on the ground. His coat has been torn up, but nothing else about him has been hurt. And they never say it. And this is again, one of those things where 
if you just watch this show, you probably just watch it casually. You don't get everything. It's kind of like the thing with the scanner not working. Mm-hmm. Which they actually don't explain. But this one, they almost don't explain. You have to really pay attention. So Susan sees a thing next to where the doctor is lying down. It's on the wall. It looks like a tiny speaker. That's what's making the growling noises of the monster. They never say that. They never go back to it. They never show what it is. She just looks at it funny and says, what is this? I wondered about that. Then they ignore it for the rest of the story. That's supposed to be the speaker that's making the sound. Okay. Because there isn't actually a monster in there. That's just a deterrent to keep the sensorites out of the aqueduct. That makes sense. So one of the... Yeah, well, I mean, jumping ahead a little bit. There are people down there. Yeah. (laughs) One of them roughed the doctor up is what we're supposed to get out of that. But yeah, you have to like read between the lines because they never explain that. So John's getting better. The first elder tells Carol that he just needs one more treatment. Then Susan tells the doctor, they're still in the aqueduct, and Susan tells the doctor that Ian never got the antidote, that she had to go get it. And so that's when he realizes, he tells them, like, one of the sensorites is against us then. And so that gives us two different enemies. Mm-hmm. Ian's like, wait a minute, isn't it three? There's the there's the monster, there's whoever's poisoning, and then there's the sensorite who stopped the antidote. And the doctor's like, no, nope. the monster and the poison are connected. So he says it's only two. And then we get to the city administrator. He's told that the doctor, Ian, and Susan have survived. And so now he's worried because he knows that they'll try to figure out why Ian's antidote didn't get to him. And he's worried that if John gets better, that John will be able to say like, hey, he was talking really cray-cray when nobody else was in the room. (laughs) (laughs) So he gives the second elder his mind transmitter, but he tells them, look, I have your family hostage, so I need you to send a very specific message. And they can monitor what each other is saying with their own transmitters. So he puts the one on his own forehead and he gives the second elder his and he basically tells him, just summon the chief warrior to a specific spot. And then the administrator with the sash of the second elder then goes out to uh, meet with the chief warrior. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's supposed to bring the firing key for the disintegrator. So that's why he's meeting with him. And... Then Susan, Ian, and the doctor, they are coming back into the palace and they see who they think is the second elder talking with the warrior. And the doctor says, hey, I want to talk to him. So he's trying to talk to the second elder, but the second elder just runs off. But this is when Ian has the idea of, hey, Barbara's probably done with her vacation. Let's have her come back. (laughs) Because Ian the whole time has just been thinking, how do we get Barbara down here? He's lost without her. It's so adorable. But anyway... The city administrator, he's gotten the firing key from the chief warrior. He comes into the disintegrator room because that's where they've been holding the second elders in the disintegrator room. But then the second elder basically, because they, for some reason, they untied him so that I guess his wrists would feel better or something. I don't know. They had him untied, but he basically jumps on the city administrator, grabs the firing key. It's like this long cylinder thing, but part of it is like really thin. And so he bends the really thin part. Mm -hmm. So it can't be used anymore. But then they kill him. Because that's what you do. Right. Also, by the way, again, that was a really weird scene fight scene along with the whole hitting over the head he telegraphed that movement i saw it from yesterday yeah the fight scenes aren't really all that good but then again they're like making these week to week and they don't have a lot of time to come up with elaborate stuff and they don't have that big of an area to work with so i kind of get it 
So then the censorite that was helping the city administrator, he's freaked out because he's like, we killed an elder, we gotta leave, we gotta like just get out of town. And the administrator seems worried at first, but then he's like, no, 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 I got another plan. <laughs> this can work in our advantage. He is full of plans. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think that's one of the problems with the city administrator because it's like, they waffle between, is he truly afraid of the humans or is he using the humans as a convenient excuse to like try to gain power? Is he just jafaring his way through all of this? Right. Like, is he trying to gain power by using everybody else's fear of the humans as a means to get in charge? And I never really get a good, because half the time it seems like he's genuinely afraid. And then other times it seems like, no, 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 he knows that the humans aren't a danger. He's just trying to make everybody else think that the humans are a problem so that he can get in charge. See, I have thoughts on this later. Okay. So then Ian, Susan, and the doctor are meeting with the first elder again, and he presents the doctor with a cloak because his coat was ripped up. Full on, like, Dracula Bella Lugosi cloak. <laughs> yeah. Even with the little tie on the ribbon in front. Oh, and he loves it. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. The censorites seem to have no sense of fashion at all, but for the doctor, they go all out. And he prances in that thing. He yeah. has every opportunity <laughs> to move and make the cloak swirl. Yep. Well, I mean, when you're wearing a cloak, don't you, have you to. take every opportunity? <laughs> right, exactly. I, I understand that feeling. I do the same thing. It's a requirement. It's just really funny to watch watch him do that. Right. Cloaks or capes. You want to make them move as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So then the city administrator comes in and he says, uh, I have something you need to hear. And so he gets his friend to come in. His friend accuses the doctor of killing the second elder. Well, at least we framed the doctor this time instead of Ian. (laughs) And they get the chief warrior who says, hey, I brought the firing key to the second elder and the second elder took it. And that part's true. Mm -hmm. And the doctor and Ian confirm like, yeah, we saw that happen. But then the other guy like jumps in with, but then, yeah, then the doctor ran off after him. They, he tried to grab the firing key. They fought and then he killed the second elder. And since they have the firing key bent, they're like, see, it looks like it was in a struggle. And uh, the doctor's like, well, I did run after him, but I didn't kill him. And, oh, I remember. And the, the other part of the story was that the doctor took something from his coat and hit the second elder, and that's what killed him. And so Ian's like immediately like, eh, this is so wrong. And he basically questions the guy and says, so describe the doctor and he's like oh he's got white hair okay he's got white hair and he wears a coat and Ian's like oh you're sure about that he's wearing he wears a coat and he's like yeah and that's where he got the weapon from and the guy says yeah and so then Ian steps aside because he's sort of like standing between the guy and the doctor and mm-hmm. then he sees that the doctor's wearing a cloak and the censorite is like oh no no I mean it was the cloak he was wearing a cloak and he brought it out from inside the cloak and then the first elder is like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, now you're tripping over some lies. Right, exactly. So they have the warrior drag the guy away. But then the city administrator acts like, well, you know, I heard this guy's story and I thought that you had to hear it. I'm totally sorry. I had no idea it was just some wild accusation. And then, God, the doctor and them have the worst idea Just like, yeah, this guy hasn't been acting shady this whole time, guys. But they're like, hey, since the second elder is dead and the first elder needs another second elder, 
maybe we should get him to like convince him to promote the city administrator and then the city administrator will be totally in our debt. Uh, why? <laughs> Guys, he's been acting so shady this whole time. Mm-hmm. So they do that and the doctor's even like, well, we have no wish to interfere in your affairs and then totally is <laughs> like, but don't you think this guy right here would be the right guy? And um, so the first elder agrees. Again, big brain. Yeah, I won't take any time to think about this. I'll just appoint this guy on the spot. Yep, and not even concerned. Yeah. So he makes the city administrator the new second elder, but then everybody's going off, and Ian stops to say congratulations, and the second, the, the, the new second elder says, when you address one of the elders, you call him sir. So Hi. they, uh, yeah. Not a good idea, guys. No. But now uh, we've gotten to where John is better. He's talking with Carol and the doctor, Susan and Ian show up. But then the scientist is it. So they're in the room. You know, the others are off talking. The doctor goes to the scientist. The scientist has like a bunch of things that the humans who came 10 years ago left on the planet. And so there are things like some photos and stuff like that. But one of the things that's there is a map of the aqueduct. Mm-hmm. So that shows that the humans had access to the map of the aqueduct. So again, suspicious. Yeah. We're really, really not making this like a difficult mystery to solve. <laughs> and so, yeah, John's telling them, like, look, I remember that one of the sensorites was against us, but I cannot remember a thing about him. But then after a little bit of discussion, Susan asks him, like, did he have like a, a different collar? And then John's like, that's it. It was the collar. He had, a, he had a, like a black collar. And so then they realized that, oh, that, that was a problem. We shouldn't have made him the new second elder. <laughs> Can we have a do-over, please? Yeah. So yeah, that now the second elder, using his newfound position, is able to get his buddy out of jail. And he tells him to sabotage two of the sensorite weapons the pastry spoons. <laughs> because he knows that Ian and the doctor are going back into the aqueduct. And also, although it doesn't happen right here, later he also like finds that they're, giving, they're going to be given a map of the aqueduct. So he has them draw new lines on it to create false pathways and stuff. And I'm just like, how does the doctor not notice that there's Sharpie or something written <laughs> all over this thing? You know, like, oh yeah, this is totally like an extra like pathway. <laughs> oh, you mean like that hurricane's not going to hit Alabama? Because I drew it in Sharpie over here. You're thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking of that thing that Trump was holding up the whole time. With that. <laughs> it's like so obvious. Oh my goodness. Oh, and was it just me or did it look like Susan was starting to flirt with John a little? Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, Susan flirts with every man in his 20s. I mean, there so. was a reason why Dione was about to cut her. <laughs> right. Yeah, because it was Alamon and the Daleks. Then she was... I mean, I guess not anyone in Marco Polo, but then in the Keys of Marinus, she was kind of uh, flirting with um, Captain No Pants. Yeah, but, but she gave that up pretty quickly. <laughs> right. But yeah, she definitely had something, something... She was making eyes at John in this scene. Yep. But yeah, John's just basically like, he, he wants to settle down now. Like He's like, I'm kind of done. <laughs> I can't blame him. Yeah. I mean, because you got to figure this is all very traumatizing, even if his mind isn't messed up in a physical way. That months of being tortured, basically, is going to take its toll. 
kind of reminds me of the DS9 episode with Miles. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, geez. Poor Carol. Uh, yeah, she's going to have to deal with that. Yeah. So, yeah, the doctor and Ian are telling the first elder they're going to go back down. He tells them that they'll be given flashlights and the guns and the map to the aqueduct. And that's when the doctor asks, at Ian's urging, mind you, that if he'll bring Barbara down from the ship, and the first elder agrees. But yeah, that's the funny thing is, like, the doctor's talking to the first elder, Ian's like, Dr. Barbara! (laughs) (laughs) Mention Barbara to him! Also, we haven't seen Maitland again. I'm just pointing that out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maitland's done after the third episode. Yeah, we don't see him ever again. It's like he just died. (laughs) Or was so unimportant. Have you you ever seen the anime Jubei-chan? I love it. (laughs) So, like, when characters aren't important in a scene or whatever, and they're just crudely drawn in the background or whatever, that's like Maitland. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm not going to be able to get that image out of my head now. You know, I'm staring at it right now on my anime, anime shelf, right there. Uh, yeah, my, my daughter and I just finished watching it. So. Did you only watch the first one or the second one? Uh, well? Oh, just the first one. Okay. I tried watching the second one, and I can only get like an episode or two into it. It was so different. There's a just, I'm just going to tangent, you can cut this one out. Okay. There, if, if you can push on through it, there is an incredible scene that will just rip your heart apart like a Pixar movie. Okay. Oh, it's so good. Okay. Okay. So yeah, and then the doctor also tells the first elder not to let Susan know that he's going down into the aqueduct. Yeah. Because splitting up and then keeping secrets is always great. Dude, we if you're a gamer, you know you don't split the party. That's right. Ever. So Carol, John, and Susan, they're going to sit down to eat, but they're waiting for the doctor and Ian because they don't know that they're going to the aqueduct. And I do like that Carol says that she can't wait to, until she can get back to Earth and have a big juicy steak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Carol. I hear you, girl. <laughs> so Carol walks out to go check on them, and that's when Susan flirts with John because Carol's conveniently gone in that scene. Right. But then as Carol's looking around, a sensorite grabs her and drags her off, and that's the cliffhanger. Uh, and there we have the name of the episode, Kidnapped. Yep. And our final episode, A Desperate Venture which may also be the behind-the-scenes story. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Again, I'll get to that when we get to the end. (laughs) So, the second elder... See, I don't... This part is another part that doesn't work for me, because I'm like, his plan is to have Carol write a letter to John that she's gone back to the spaceship. I don't know what that gains him at all. Yeah, I've... It was bad. Yeah, and he tells her that, you gotta write this because I'll let you live. And it's like, yeah, because I totally believe that. He wants to get rid of the humans, but he'll let one of them live if she cooperates. Okay. And then his buddy's like, you're, so you're going to you know, promote me, right? And dude's like, I, I, I reward those who are loyal to me. And I'm like, wow, this is very relevant right now. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm shocked that Carol doesn't really resist much more than that, but she does write the letter. She does, and ob- it's very obviously no. This, is not, this, this letter was forced. It's this big piece of paper, and she just writes, hey, like, have gone up the spaceship, Carol, on it. You know, it's like such a, it's barely anything on this note. in really big letters. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. But then at this point, Barbara's come down. And so she's with John and Susan. They see the note, and they basically say, like, who, like, we know Carol couldn't have written this because 
she would not have gone without saying Reasons. anything. Right. And then we also know because Barbara came from the spaceship that she would have passed Carol going the other way right. if that had happened. So they know that this is, you know, the, and that whoever had her write this didn't know Barbara was kind. Also, I want to point out, John gets right up in Barbara's personal space during this whole conversation. Like, he is maybe three inches away from her. Well, he's worried. Carol is his fiance. I know, but then Susan comes up right on his shoulder like, wait, I was the one flirting. (laughs) But no, he's like right there. Yeah. That's an uncomfortable amount of space, even when there's not a pandemic. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, that happens a lot in Doctor Who. That's just because they're trying to get everyone into shot. And so, yeah, Barbara's suspicion is that it's one of the censorites who wants power. Mm-hmm. How she comes to that conclusion with almost no information, I don't know. But because she's Because right. Barbara has the massive intellect, the censorites only have massive intellect. <laughs> oh, Barbara is a goddess. That's right. <laughs> so they show the note to the first elder, and he's like, well, I didn't have her go up to the ship. And they're like, yeah, we know that. And he's like, well, why did she write a lie then? <laughs> like, that's not the point. <laughs> then they basically tell him that they think that one of the censorites has grabbed her and made her write that. And he's like, none of the censorites would do that. We're all good people. And they're just like, you know, face palming at this point. Right. Like, why do you trust them? Because they're censorites. Yep. So they basically ask him, hey, is there anyone nearby? Because we know the ink is fresh because we smudged it when we touched it. So it has to have been written really recently. And so they find out the only place near the palace that it could have come from would be the disintegrator room because it's barely ever used. And that's also when he tells them that the Doctor and Ian has gone down into the aqueduct. Mm-hmm. But it's okay because they were armed. And I'm like, no, no, they weren't. Yeah. Well, this is the funny thing. So they're already in the aqueduct, and they're far enough in that they must have taken some turns because they don't know how to get out. And the doctor's only just now looking at the map. And I'm like, uh, that's a bad idea. But then, of course, as soon as he looks at it, he's like, hey, look, all the lines have been changed. And I'm like, who doesn't look at the map before they walk into the place? I mean, come on. And somehow, they don't explain how, because they cut to the scene with Ian saying that the tennis racket thingies aren't working. So it's like, (laughs) wait, what were you trying to shoot with it that you discovered that it isn't working? I was just attacking the darkness. (laughs) Oh, now I wish that we had that scene with Ian trying to attack the darkness. Uh But yeah, so John, because, uh, you know, they figure that Carol must be in the disintegrator room, he sneaks in there. The censorite is basically like taunting Carol, uh, the one who was the one that accused the doctor. And um, one of the censorite warriors comes in with John. And so they grab that censorite. They recognize him. So again, this is a way to show that the censorites can recognize each other because the warrior recognizes him because he's like, you got away from me once before. I'm not going to let you get away this time. Also, John's sneak attack was pretty pathetic. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's been probably not resting well and hasn't been exercising or anything else. So, you know, I mean, give the man, I mean, come on. (laughs) Kind of a little slack. Yeah. So the first elder realizes that there must be two sensorites doing this because if one was guarding Carol, then the other one must have delivered the note, but he doesn't know who that is. And of course the second elder sort of standing there going like, uh, Oh, you think he had an accomplice? Really? (laughs) Doesn't seem likely, does it? But then when he's, oh, we gotta have, like, 
definite proof of who it is. And, you know, Susan and Barbara are in the room and the second elder is like, that's right. Definite proof. (laughs) (laughs) Like really like rubbing this in. So the doctor and Ian are in the tunnel. Ian thinks that he sees something. And so the doctor gives him the rolled up map. Because I mean, it's going to do about as much good as, as the pastry, as the pastry whisk that doesn't work. I mean, at least with this, he might give them a paper cut. Yeah, I, I mean, this is nice because that's like what you use on like a dog that's misbehaving or something, right? Nope. You take the rolled up, you like a rolled up piece of paper and you like whack them or something. Mm-hmm. So like, you, you see something like man-sized in front of you and you think, oh, I'm just going to whack it with a rolled up piece of paper. It's probably the same thought that I have about squirting people. Like I squirt my cats to make them behave. <laughs> Stop it. So yeah, Ian, but Ian even like, he's even weirder. He like holds it out in front of him like it's a spear or something as he walks slowly forward. Ian is a, Ian's a great warrior in his own mind. <laughs> yes. And so, uh, yeah, he just keeps inching forward, but then the guy like basically knocks it out of his hand and they wrestle, but then the guy gets away. But Ian's ripped off like portion of his uniform, and it looks like they sort of rocket things that are. We didn't describe the the uniforms that Carol and Maitland were wearing, but they're basically, you know, they're like a jumpsuit kind of thing, but they have like these two rockets on either side of it. Right. And it's a rocket, and part of it's been burned, but you get the letters. It's basically in the ear, so mm-hmm. it originally said engineer. Right. You just see the second half of it. And Ian you know, tells the doctor, like, whatever I was wrestling one with was definitely human. And that's when the doctor is like, yeah, I knew it. It's one of the humans from the first spaceship. So now we know for sure. Right. Even though it's been pretty obvious since episode three. <laughs> <laughs> so Barbara and Susan are talking and they sort of decide on a plan that, oh, because they found out from the censorite, even though he wouldn't give away who he was working with, he said that he had sabotaged the guns and the map. And so their idea is, okay, well, we've got a good map here. So Susan can stay in the palace and direct Barbara and John. They give Barbara one of the mind transfer discs. Mm -hmm. And even though she can't use it as well as a censorite, when Susan is transmitting to her, she can't hear her thoughts and they can both talk to each other. Also, you glossed over the whole fact that Susan talks about home briefly talks about how they haven't been back in ages. And she gives a slight description of seeing the the color of the sky. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, this is the first time we've actually heard any sort of description about their home world, which we don't know the name of still. So I just thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, no, that's actually after Barbara walks off of this scene, but uh, (laughs) I was getting there. But yeah, she says that the sky is burnt orange at night and the leaves on the trees are bright silver. I like, I want to see this. Yeah. You'll see some of it. How long is ages? How long have they been traveling? Will I ever know? Uh, you'll never know how long they've been traveling, no. Oh, why do they do this to me? <laughs> but yeah, Susan says something about like, we'll all go home someday. But the first elder says he senses from her that she wants to go home, but also that she wants to keep traveling. So she's kind of torn between the two. So yeah, the doctor and Ian are still kind of wandering around. They know there are people there. They're looking for them. But they both are turned in opposite directions at this point with their backs to each other. And they both see, like the doctor was just mentioning that like maybe there'd be an ambush. And they both see somebody come into the corridor on either side. 
Mm-hmm. But they don't notice that the other one is there. Right. And so Ian's like, doctor. And the doctor's like, yeah, I see him. Like, they're both thinking the other one is looking in the same direction as they are. And the doctor's like, maybe we can just jump past him. Right. And so then they both back up and they back up into each other. <laughs> and then they jump around surprised. And then they see the guy on the other ends. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, yeah, this is this is a problem. So they just wait. And so the two men who are coming towards them, we finally get a good look at them now. They are super hairy, really long, natty, nasty hair, big beards. Their uniforms are all kind of torn up. We're taking inspiration from Cave of Skulls for this part. Yeah, they look kind of like the cavemen. And they both have these, they look like branches that have been sharpened at one end. They're going to kill massive vampires. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a big stake, basically. They're each carrying a big stake. Because it's not even a spear. That's a stake. Yeah, no, it's, it would have to be longer to be an effective spear. It looks more like a club with just one end sharpened. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they come up to the doctor and Ian, but then they act like, oh, we've been waiting for you. So they ask him if the sensorites are dead. They don't really give confirmation or anything, but they tell them that their commander wants to talk to them. So they lead Ian and the doctor off. And then that's when John and Barbara start walking into the tunnels and Susan's directing them. And Susan has to tell Barbara to talk aloud at the same time that you're thinking, because otherwise it's very muddled. Right. That makes sense, man. My thoughts tumble over each other much faster in my head than they can come out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. But I honestly have to ask, does holding your hands to your temples help with telepathy? Well, seeing as how you see it all the time when people are using telepathy and stuff, it must. Oh my gosh. Because that's, oh, that's another thing. Like, Susan doesn't need the mind transmitters. Mm-mm. She, just she can just it. do it herself by holding her hands on <laughs> either side of her forehead. So, yeah, the, the two men that the doctor and Ian met, they lead him to a third guy who they say is their commander. And he looks about the same as they do, but he's, like, way more, Like, where those two guys, like, barely spoke, like, they it was grunt. just kind of... Yeah, they kind of grunt out, like, what they're saying. This guy's very eloquent. This dude's full-on British. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, you can tell he's crazy because he acts like there's nothing strange about living in a cave with nasty clothes and unkept hair and and beard and is just like, yeah, this is just like a normal, like, military operation we're doing here. (laughs) He tells the one to talk to the other one about how his uniform doesn't look nice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like when their uniforms are ripped up and, like, there's no way to make it look nice. And he's talking about being at battle stations and stuff like that. And he's just like, it's, it's so nice to have you here. I mean, obviously the conditions aren't what you would want, but, psh, you know. Okay. I want to point out for his craziness and explanations for the other two's grunting and devolving. You mentioned deadly nightshades growing down there. And that's Belladonna. And the full scientific name is Atropo, Atropa Belladonna. And one of the things that it can secrete is atropine. And atropine is a nerve blocker that indeed you can OD on and it will basically just freeze your system up. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, they use it for people, you know, that on eyes and stuff. It basically paralyzes some things. It stops okay. the, yeah, which is one of the reasons it's one of the drugs that can, that you take when counteracting the effects of sarin gas. Amusingly enough, potatoes also fall into that same family. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> The things I learned. Thank you, Doctor Who. Yeah, it's teaching you science. That's what it's supposed to do. Science! (laughs) 
But yeah, I mean, I think it's supposed to be more of both a combination of the sensorites and the, the mind stuff with the sensorites, and also they've been living in a cave for 10 years and I they've like kind of gone crazy. They're suffering a little bit of atropine poisoning. Well, and that could be part of it too. I mean, let's just make it a big cocktail. <laughs> You know, because yeah, they they the, so so they were they were greedy. They were also after the molybdenum. <laughs> they yeah. also suffered from sensorite telepathy. They say that they had experimented with the mind transmitters, and they're living alone by themselves for ten years. And mm. there's nerve poison in the cave with them, and they're using it. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I'm sure that makes for a nice cocktail for them. <laughs> But then he's worried that they're going to try to take the molybdenum. Like, again, these three people think that they've destroyed an entire world. So that's another crazy part because they're like, oh, are all the sensorites dead? Well, I mean, they've been working hard to poison different, to poison different acronyms <laughs> at different times. Right. And honestly, for 10 years, it's been working. Well, I mean, true, but still, I mean, to kill them all, you know, I mean, it's a bit much. But even the guy, like, you find out he was crazy to begin with, I mean, even before the 10 years, because he says the reason that they blew up their two friends, because there were five of them originally, was because the two friends argued that they needed reinforcements from Earth to conquer the planet. Oh, these three guys were like, no, no, we can take it. (laughs) Right, exactly. So, yeah, they're not doing well. And then, yeah, when he... When, when Ian says that he knows that there's molybdenum, he, like, suddenly gets, like, it's ours. Like, we, we fought this war by ourselves. You better not try to take it from us. I mean, how much do they think they can carry? Right? <laughs> it's like, you're going to need equipment to mine stuff anyway. So, I don't know if he's, they're talking about, like, mining, right? Like, I don't know how any of this works, like, economically. Like, maybe he's talking about, like, whenever they, like, bring in the equipment, like, they get, like, a cut or a commission or whatever. But anyway. So, Yeah. This guy is a really good actor, too. This is also one of the really good actors we have here, because he really does the unhinged gentleman very mm-hmm. well. But then one of the other guys jumps out, and he says, like, hey, there are more people in the caves, and he's freaking out because the doctor and Ian told them they were alone. And But then when Barbara and John come up, the doctor's like, no, no, you're misjudging us. They're the welcoming committee. <laughs> Like, totally figuring out, this guy's crazy, so I'm just going to spin a story. And thankfully, John and Barbara don't say anything to, like, contradict it. Oh, no, they roll with with it. Right, exactly. And it's like, yeah, we're going to welcome you up to the surface so that you can have, like, a parade and, you know, everything. And they're like, oh, okay. And the funny thing is, the other two go off pretty quickly, but he almost seems sad that he has to go. He was enjoying fighting his little war. But I, it just seemed to me, like, on his face that he didn't seem as happy as the other two were to leave. And in fact, even when they come out, the sensorites are there waiting for them when they come out because Barbara yep. fought at Susan and told them to be ready. And so the other two, when they, because they come out first and they see the sensorites, they just drop their, like, club steak things and just, They're like, are like, yeah, and they just walk off. They're, like, they almost look relieved that it's, like, finally we can get out of there and, like, I don't care what happens at this point. I just don't want to go back in that game. Right. Whereas when the commander comes out, he sees the sensorites, and then another one comes in, in cl- you know, in front of the cave entrance, so he can't go back in, and he tries to run, and but then they sh- they shoot him with their with their guns, but their guns are stun guns, mm-hmm. so they don't kill him. So then we cut to Ian and Barbara, and they're telling the first elder that Maitland's going to take those guys back with him to Earth. Hey, look, Maitland's not dead. Right. We don't see him. Yeah, we don't see him, but they they mention him, so he's he's still around somewhere. Acting like he's in another show. (laughs) 
and so yeah, that's what they talk about. Yeah, they, they experimented with the mind transmitters, and all their rational thoughts were destroyed, and blah blah blah. And that because of what's happened, they figured out that it was the new second elder who was the one who sabotaged everything. So he's being banished. And so the first elder gives them back the TARDIS lock so that they can leave. And then we get to our final scene, which is back in the TARDIS. The Doctor and Susan are waiting for Ian and Barbara. Susan's annoyed because she found out that her telepathy was so good just because the sense sphere has unique properties that allowed her to use those abilities but that once she leaves it won't really work but the doctor points out that you know there is the opportunity once they eventually go home that there are places where she could go and see if it could be re- be developed more mm-hmm. and yeah and that is something that the expanded universe material does definitely run with but then Ian and barbara come in they don't really explain how all this works because I don't know where the TARDIS was, but Ian and Barbara come in, but then on the scanner, they watch Maitland's ship fly off, but the TARDIS isn't actually moving yet. You can tell because that thing in the middle isn't going up and down, you know, the th- thing in the middle of the console isn't going up and down. Right. But yeah, they see the ship fly off and Ian says, well, at least they know where they're going. And that sets the doctor off. Oh yeah, no, again. We just swung back the other way. <laughs> right. The doctor's like, I am dropping you off at the next place we land. Yeah, because he's like, oh, are you implying that I can't control this ship? I think that Ian should have just been like, yes, I am, because you can't. But... I was thinking the same thing. Just, just admit it. You start, you just go ahead and say that's exactly what you're laughing at. He doesn't know. Yeah. So yeah, the doctor threatens to put them off on the very next place. And that is the cliffhanger for our next story. All right. So I got to say it before I forget it. This ending felt rushed it felt slipshod this whole plot line felt very meandering and my thought when i got to the end of it all was that it felt like the game of thrones books and you know the whole miranese not problem that he got himself into where daenerys is just stuck in marine and he couldn't he's in the books he still can't he still hasn't written himself out of this problem (laughs) and the show luckily got us out they basically took a sword and hacked through the knot like he normally would but I was thinking about how the book Game of Thrones, this reminded me of the Game of Thrones books and just meandering, we're stuck here, we don't know what we're doing. And there's a thought that we may never see another Game of Thrones book because with our luck, George R.R. R. Martin will kick the bucket before he can write another one. And then you tell me that the writer of this arc fell down some stairs after having writer's block, after writing these episodes, never writing another thing, falls downstairs and dies. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot more like a, my theory than I wanted it to be. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I just thought that that was kind of like just an interest. I can't even remember why I brought that up that he died after this. Oh, that's, I think I was trying to say like, we don't know what he was really thinking when he wrote this because no one was able to interview him. Right. I just, I feel like this could, this had so much potential and I feel like it just meandered a little much. Well, I will say the other thing that this writer is known for was a movie from 1959 that he wrote, which was about, British soldiers committing war crimes in Asia during World War II and then being caught behind Japanese lines later and having those same like horrible things done to them. Oh my god. So I think this is this is a theme he's playing with the idea of two sides who equally cause their problems because of the fact that they can't you know, like each one sees the evil in the other. And so they both do bad things to each other, which just perpetuates like the problem. But the censorites literally saw the evil in the humans. Yeah. No, I know. I'm just saying the thematically, I th- I'm just saying this is a theme that I think he liked to play with was the sort of idea of 
because there were bad humans and there were good humans and there were bad censorites and there were good censorites and it was all because of the fact that neither group trusted each other that it got worse than it should have really been because the people who were basically the bad actors were able to operate in that environment because of the mistrust right but honestly i know you say he had writer's block and after this i think he had writer's block during this and never (laughs) got out of it well i i think it does suffer i mean i will agree with you on this i think that it suffers from too many ideas that aren't developed like we got susan's got psychic powers we've got the idea of humans coming here for like mineral right like you know trying to strip mine this planet we've got the idea of mental damage causing psychosis basically they spider-man threed us with three villains in in one movie we don't care about any of them right and and i think that's the real problem with this one is is it's too much going on and it would have been better either to cut down the number of like cut down some of the ideas and properly develop the ones that you have rather than just trying to throw more ideas in place. Yeah. But yeah, and and I still think like, I still feel like when I watch that ending that it's like, they set this up as a happy ending, but I still think that, yeah, Carol and John are probably going to go settle down somewhere and get married. Maitland Maitland is probably going to go to the authorities and be like, this planet's got tons of molybdenum. (laughs) We need to take an armada. (laughs) Think hard thoughts in fact in the expanded universe stuff in the novels they talk about the conquest of the sense sphere oh my god (laughs) and i was like i was right wow yeah like the the earth empire comes and conquers the sense sphere well that's awful yeah yeah but i mean because even to say like even if maitland shuts up those three crazy guys aren't going to shut up and someone's going to be like, maybe we should check on this because these guys keep talking about this treasure planet that they found. Mm-hmm. I'm shocked that the Sensorites let them take those three guys with them because, like, you can't get somebody to make an agreement not to tell if they're crazy. Wow. Yeah, so you, you, you've kind of given your thoughts overall on the story. Yeah. What do you think about with Susan and trying to develop Susan a little bit more, putting the Doctor more in sort of the central point? I mean, it's kind of about time. It is called Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, he, he should be my central character. Mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Barbara. Barbara's my girl. But I do like the development of Susan's character in this arc. It's probably one of the few things I liked about this arc was Susan got more of the, more, a little bit more of the spotlight. She got to do more, um, even if she did throw a few temper tantrums along the way. Mm-hmm. And I like the doctor. I like the doctor in sp- in spite of his mood swings. <laughs> well, I like that he really seems to be enjoying solving the problem. Like, it, it, I, I always like William Hartnell's doctor when he's convinced he's 10 steps ahead of everyone else. And he's just taking joy in being 10 steps ahead oh, of he everybody was, else. <laughs> he was so excited when he was like, it's atropine poisoning. <laughs> yeah. He was so happy about that. You could see it on his face. Happiness right there. Yeah. So there's this interesting thing that I read when I was preparing for this episode. And one of the books that I read talked about the problem of Susan. And they talk about the fact that this episode kind of gives us that sort of front and center that she wants independence, but she caves into the doctor when she's confronted. Mm -hmm. She's capable of acting alone, but the doctor won't let her. She wants to find her way home, and the doctor wants to endlessly wander. So it's like, Susan is this character, but it's because they sort of wall her in. She's also walling in the doctor's character, and like neither one of them can develop 
while they're together. I can see that. Yeah, I thought it was an interesting idea. I'd never thought of it like that before, but I thought that it was at least interesting enough to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you think about the Sensorites at the end? I don't want to judge them based on like the story because it just felt so rushed. I guess they were okay. No, they're totally going to get caught. There was there was no way they weren't going to get conquered later. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they're trying to give us a sympathetic alien. Because mm-hmm. in the Keys of Marinus, even though they're apparently aliens, it's another planet. We don't know. They could be humans that came to Marinus a long time ago or whatever. Oh, but those, most of those people were horrible people. But they looked like humans. Except for the brains with eye stalks. That's true. But they said that they had originally been human and their brains just kept getting bigger. And so that's why they lived in jars now. Right. Uh But then the other aliens that we got were the Daleks. And of course, Daleks, not sympathetic. And so it was kind of nice that they said, you know, that they gave us a race to deal with like they're another civilization rather than they are quote unquote monsters. It was nice. They may may have looked really weird, but I did like that part. Yeah. Another one of the things that I read up about was that there seemed to be, maybe even subconsciously on the writer's part, some ideas of this is like what the British sort of thought communist China was like. <laughs> wow. Where, you know, like everyone's sort of like put in a, you know, like this is what job you're suited for and this is what job you're suited for and, you know, that kind of thing. And where everyone looks alike? Well, oh yeah, God. exactly. So that's why I'm saying it might even been unconscious on the writer's part. It seems like there might have been a little bit of a hint of that in there. Of oh, there wasn't even a hint. They just went out and stated it. <laughs> right. Well, no, I'm just saying like tying it in with British thoughts of China at the time okay. and that sort of idea of back then. People would say even outright things like, you know, quote unquote, they all look the same. Mm -hmm. So I also think it was kind of interesting because where we we just came off of the Aztecs where the humans were the monsters. Oh, no, we're still the monsters. We're the monsters and everything. Right. And that's, again, where we're coming from here with the humans are the bad guys. It is not the alien. I mean, there's the one bad guy. There's the city administrator amongst the censorites. But in general, it is the humans who are the bad guys. And it's kind of interesting because, I mean, this does take a negative viewpoint to, you know, it's not it's not so weird nowadays to have like that sort of colonial mindset, the mindset of going into another country and taking their stuff and whatnot is depicted as negative. But this is the 60s. This yeah. is where still people thought of that as that's what you do, right? You go to less developed places and you take you all their stuff. Right, exactly. You plant a flag. So again, it's kind of a little bit ahead of its time in that way. And that's why I'm kind of disappointed that the execution is so bad. I know. Because there's lots of really good ideas here, and it's just not coming together. Mm-mm. I mean, I'm not even going to ask about Ian and Barbara, because they were barely in this. They were. It was very sad. Although yeah. it was nice seeing Ian be, be the one to be incapacitated for once. Yeah. No, that was good. And then, yeah, I mean, and Barbara, of course, she shows up and takes charge at the end because she's Barbara, but, you right. know, it's kind of a little bit tacked on there. All right, so you may have already given us your final thoughts, but do you have anything else to... Oh, wait, 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 you said that you might have had something more to talk about with the city administrator guy who becomes the second elder? Yeah, I don't even know now. Oh, okay. When we were talking about that before, you said, like, oh, I have something more to say later on. No, I think it may have just been discussing the squandered potential. Okay, sure. Okay. So yeah, you have uh, any other thoughts for our final thoughts on this one? Not really. I feel like this one could have been better served in fewer episodes and not as many storylines all packed into six, which I hate to say it by the end, if the end felt rushed, but at the same time, I needed it to be done. (laughs) 
Well, and that's why I say it feels tedious, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it, a lot of things are dragged out. Like, I mean, we talked about the one thing where like Ian's backing away from them as they're slowly advancing, and it's like, my God, just get this over. With. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the I love buildup of tension and stuff like that. I just rewatched Unbreakable and was you know we were thinking about that about how the payoff is the one fight toward the end, and that's it, mm-hmm. where he saves the kids, but. The rest of the movie is just a whole bunch of buildup, but it's enjoyable buildup. This buildup wasn't even buildup. This just felt like a long, drawn out. Right, because there are scenes that are there to just pad it out rather than... Because like we said, Ian's plan of what he's going to do with the sensorites doesn't even seem to be developed. He just goes there and then he backs away from them. And that's the part that makes it painful is because it's unnecessary and it's just dragged out. Mm-hmm. I mean, high point for me was John's acting. Yeah. I'd agree with that. And the guy at the end, the commander. Oh, yeah, no, his craziness <laughs> was awesome. He was funny to watch. He's only in it for five minutes, but he's great. He's more memorable than Maitland? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, and that's the problem. Like, that, like, there's so many good concepts here. And, but when we get to the end of it, it just feels like Rod Serling should show up or something and be like <laughs> three people causing the whole world to be at war. You know, like something I think along he just those found lines. the outro for this episode right there. <laughs> it's just it's one of those kinds of scenes tacked on because it feels like it should just be like a short Twilight Zone episode because all the clues are there. Mm-hmm. We didn't need six episodes for the build-up to. It was the humans who came there years ago and that all the problems started after they showed up all along. Yep. Yeah. So what would be your rating for this one? Uh, out of ten? Mm-hmm. Uh, I will reluctantly give it a four and a half. Okay. And that's mostly because I enjoyed Susan's development and I liked John's acting and Crazy Dude at the end. Yeah, that's funny because I give it a five. <laughs> nice so we're still we're still kind of like Cohen pretty pretty much in sync here on these I find this highly amusing yeah because I'm basically saying the good and the bad kind of cancel each other out on this one and if anything that actually makes it a little bit worse mm-hmm. because you don't have anything good right because it doesn't veer into so bad it's good territory it's just kind of there <laughs> So. Yeah, I hate to say it, but yeah, by that last episode, I was just kind of ready to move on. Mm. So for my like mention for a, a book, if you're interested in it, there is a biography on the first Doctor called Who's There? Aww. Which is written by his granddaughter, Aww. Jessica Carney. So yeah, if you want to know more about William Hartnell, about his life and everything, and about his time in Doctor Who, because that's definitely talked about in there too, but... He had a huge acting career before that, both in the theater and in Like, he was more well-known as a movie actor. Mm. He did a lot of movies in the 30s and 40s and 50s. So, yeah, I mean, all about his life, kind of person he was and everything. And she doesn't spare any punches on his negative traits and stuff, too. So it's kind of an interesting read from someone who was a close family member, uh, you know, about her grandfather. So, yeah. I'll have to check it out from the library. Yeah, it's really good. I I recommend it. So next up is The Reign of Terror. It's not on BritBox because it is one of the ones that has some episodes missing. They're not all missing. It is a six-parter. Episodes four and five are missing. So I will get you the episodes, Juliet, so that you can watch it. But yeah, we're going to have to do reconstructions of episodes four and five. But yeah, at least enough of it exists. So this is one where they don't have telesnaps. 
the director was another person who passed away before anyone was able to talk to him or interview him, so we don't know if he ever had the telesnaps. Okay. But there's enough stuff from the four episodes that they can sort of put together pictures that kind of tell the story of those two episodes that are missing with the material from the other four. Cool. Yeah. So that'll be taking us back to the time of the French Revolution. Ooh. Wait, which one? The one in the 1790s. Okay, because the French have like a revolution every 50 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about guillotines. Mm. Hey, and you said it right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my mother is French. Okay. <laughs> it, 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 it bothers me every time I hear somebody say a guillotine, and I'm like, guillotine, guillotine. Yeah, no, I, I actually come from French stock, so awesome. I actually do know. Yeah, yeah, I don't speak a word of it, but I can pronounce it correctly. So. Uh, je parle français un petit peu. <laughs> That's all I got. I, I took it when I was in kindergarten. No, oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, I took German. <laughs> so you went, you were like, I just want to go spit on people. <laughs> well, I thought French will never actually be useful to me at all, but German has a slightly marginal chance of being useful to me in my life. Was it? Not yet. <laughs> but I knew I was going into engineering, so I thought, like, yeah, like the French are not well known as engineers, but the Germans are, so, you know. <laughs> Maybe I'll work for a German company. Hmm. But no, I never worked for a German company. I worked for a Japanese company. And that's completely different. Yeah, no, I am not good with languages. I think learning Japanese, like learning how to write and read Japanese, I think would be very difficult. It is, having done it. Yeah, my wife just picks up languages like no problem. Like she can speak a good amount of Japanese. She can write it. Mm-hmm. Of course, she, she downloaded some apps. Yeah, Duolingo. Yeah, she downloaded some apps that help with, like, showing you how to do the brush strokes and everything and, like, the order. Because the order matters of which... It does indeed. Yeah, so she got all that down. So, yeah, she can read and write Japanese at a rudimentary level as well as speak it. I just pick up whatever I learned from watching anime and Godzilla (laughs) movies. So I can speak it a little bit, but... Okay. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) All right, well, that has nothing to do with time streams, but... (laughs) It's a fun little aside there, but yeah, this is definitely the low point of the season. And it's pretty well universally thought of as the low point of the season. And so, yeah, again, disappointing because I think there's a lot of neat stuff in here, but they don't use it well. All right. So, uh, yeah, I guess it's time to wrap things up. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution license. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution license.